Hello again. Yeah, what what are they gonna change this damn sky ding ding dong 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 dong, dong. <laughs> so annoying. It is. It's like when you get certain phones they have those stupid tones all the time. Like, come on, really? Yeah. <laughs> the gold mine, your central guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, we're doing something slightly different. Humphrey Bogart on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Wizzy Network now on podcast. So, good evening, and welcome to the, oh, jeez, I have no idea what episode it is anymore, of the ninth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness, among other things, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, we used to mention that we were going to be covering classic films, and today, that's actually what we'll be doing. We'll be covering actual literal classic films. Born here right in New York City at the very cusp of the Fond du Lac, Christmas Day, 1899, Humphrey DeForest Bogart came from a money family as a sign of an early feminist suffragette, intended to be brought up in, quote, proper society. He blew his shot at Yale by tossing the headmaster into a local pond, his penchant for two-fisted belligerence and a taste for strong, even, quote, difficult women, present from an early age. I wouldn't give you two cents for a dame without a temper, he once said. Joining the Navy at the height of the Great War, he came back from his experience a liberal who hated pretensions, phonies, and snobs, defying both conventional behavior and authority. That's a quote. Very much a man after my own heart. Breaking into film in a recurring, even typecast role as a gangster of one sort or another. Supposedly due to resemblance to folk hero gangster John Dillinger, I'm really not seeing that, but... Even so, he worked that niche for about six years in dozens of films before landing the role that made him a star, Sam Spade and John Huston's The Maltese Falcon. Following up with the much-beloved Casablanca, it was his films with a certain someone that really cemented his position as a true Hollywood icon to have and have not, The Big Sleep, Dark Passage, and Key Largo. It took him three bad marriages, the last of whom burned down their house, went after him with a knife, and slit her own wrist several times before he finally met his match in the sultry Lauren Bacall, who was both his longest and final spouse, and less than half his age. They met on the set of The Have and Have Not, and the heat carried off screen with the two remaining a couple through his death 12 years on. Always open about his issues with directors, actors, and producers, so often left on a pedestal before that. He both stood up rather openly against McCarthy's blacklist that was hitting so many in Hollywood at the time, and even started his own production company, Santana Productions, the working outside the system nature of which likely occasioned his run of far lesser, if occasionally much faded, final films, of which In a Lonely Place is easily the strongest contender. Further, the man who coined the term the Rat Pack and dubbed the PR director of its earliest iteration, which included Bogey, Bacall, Sinatra, and Judy Garland, and her husband, among others. Join us as we talk tonight, one of the true legends of the studio era, the inimitable Humphrey Bogart. Well, always in Paris, the films of Humphrey Bogart. I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Mr. Lewis Paul. Yeah, that's me. Um, you could have did better on that, because Humphrey's one of the easier guys to imitate, but I'm not going to do it. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, some quick things about him. This was, he's an icon of film. The guy's tremendous. Starting out in the films you kind of mentioned, until he became a superstar, he had an unusual look. You know, back in these days, 
in these kind of films, gangster movies, crime films, we didn't always have pretty boys. The pretty boy thing didn't start till a little later on. But yeah, there was some by occasion. John Garfield, before he got pummeled by being an amateur boxer. James Dean's, you know, this is a little later on toward the end of Humphrey's career. But pretty boy stuff wasn't really a happening thing. So he had a look. He was a guy. Had a look. He had He had a distinct kind of sound to his voice, which actually worked really well when he was playing a baddie. And which became really unique when he was playing good guys and romantic leads. Very interesting. And and I always liked that about him because if you didn't have somebody for Humphrey Bogart, like Humphrey Bogart, years later, decades later, you wouldn't have your, your Dustin Hoffmans. You wouldn't have your, for better or not, your De Niro's, your Al Pacino's, because these guys were not good-looking guys. Mm-hmm. No? You wouldn't have your Christopher Walken's. You wouldn't have your... Your Bruce Willis, you know, you wouldn't have Jack Nicholson. This, Jack Nicholson. This was a, a a certain something that if you had the magnetism and if you had something about you and you were good as a likable person, you you were interesting as an unlikable person. This is a very unique thing. And Humphrey Bogart is one of the first people in. I mean, there were others, but we're talking about him tonight. But he was one of the first people that. Here's the thing: when I was growing up. Younger, and we had black and white TV, and then we had color. <laughs> yeah, everybody's poor. You know, some people in the seventies still didn't have color TV. We did not own a color TV until nineteen seventy-nine or eighty. We actually had, okay. and they're all tiny. It was all little, tiny, smaller than a computer monitor TVs. We had we had a Philco, a PHILCO. Sting was a monster. It was like four feet wide by like. Five feet tall, and it's like you had that little clicky thing, but you still had rabbit ears, and of course, mm-hmm. yep. you know the deal. And then, uh, just like Winky Dink, you would go to the store and purchase these tricolor things to watch things in color because they said you could watch things in color on your black and white TV, and it was just well, I forget about it. <laughs> so, yo, know, almost everything was on black and white. So, but back in those days, not even late night TV, you could see some good, really got my my. My stuff going for the black and white TV, the early pictures in the 30s and the 40s and the mm-hmm. 50s. I really enjoyed those, especially ones in the 30s and the 40s. Then when cable came along uh, in the 80s, pretty much, there were things like TBS, AMC, don't knock it. They mm-hmm. were one of the first people to really show a lot of this noir stuff. Yeah. Uh, they really were. And uh, this is before Turner. I'll actually say that the big one, I mean, like you mentioned, in the 70s, you could catch them anywhere, especially the syndicates, you know, 5, mm-hmm. 9, 11 in this area, anybody's in the New York area. But definitely the public TV people, you know, Channel 50, yes. Channel 13, you would catch a lot of talkies and pre-code stuff. And a decent Wasn't amount... there one in the 40s, maybe 48? possibly yes i think so there was basically all public tvs were talking about local access that kind of thing and that's what they would do because they were basically at those days they weren't so concerned about licensing so they would sell a package and here we got all these movies and we're giving to you for whatever 500 bucks or something show them whatever the hell you want so late night there was no infomercials you either had the test signal or they would run movies and during the day, you know, so especially the syndicates, they didn't care. It was like, why do we fill our schedule? And hey, why don't we show a movie? And a lot of times it would be something like a Bogart movie or whatever. And then later, as you mentioned in the 80s, 
AMC was the first, I believe, of all these networks. And in the beginning, they were great because yes. they yeah. had the Warner package, they had the Paramount package, they had the Universal package. They showed everything. No commercials, no yeah. bullshit. In between, you had people like, not even Robert Osborne, but the guy that came before him, the, the guy with the gray hair and the glasses, mm. used to introduce them and give you facts about the stars and the movie and whatever the hell else. Sometimes a little bit of dirt, not too much. but And then later, of course, that went down the toilet. And one of the reasons was Ted Turner yanked all the Warner stuff and some others. Actually, maybe he only left them with Warner. He connected everything else and took them over to his networks, which first was TBS and TNT, right. uh, and then became you know, the Turner Network itself, where they actually just showed Turner Classic Movies, and God knows what happened since then. I think it all just kind of went away. Well, TB, uh, TBS, yeah, when that happened, when Turner took that stuff over, TBS was also showing, like, oddball Euro packages, too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's where you can see all this Euro spice stuff that still turns up from time to time. And Elvis movies. <laughs> and Elvis movies. But their their commercial time frame uh, periods were, were infinitesimal. They weren't that bad. So you virtually almost saw everything at the original running time in a two-hour slot. And if it was a little longer, it was, I think, by occasion, maybe a little lengthy. But then when they started upping the commercial time, they were butchering movies. Even oh, yeah. And time compressing. I remember I had a lot of VHS recordings off TV, and it was mm. almost always off a Turner network at that point mm. from the 90s. And they would always say, this movie has been time compressed to fit, you know, whatever the hell. I'm like, really? Now, you mentioned dirt. I don't think there's ever been any dirt on Humphrey Bogart. Although, I, I, I read a couple things about something, but it's not appropriate to talk about. But, uh, no, he wasn't sexually interested, as far as I know, in other genders. But, but uh, you know, he's... Bogart was interesting, though, because just yeah. you talk about his look before. He yes. looked old from a young age, even his earliest mm-hmm. films. He looked like a mug. You know, he, was like, he had a lived-in look about him. He was clearly a big drinker. And one thing I noticed this time around from watching so many Bogart films in a row, it's actually distracting once you notice it. He had, a lot of people say he had a prominent lisp. But that's not the thing that you only notice. If you watch him in these movies, and you've got, you know, nowadays we've got more or less high-definition TVs and up-converting and God knows what else, his lip is always wet. It's like he's, uh, you don't actually notice spittle coming out, but you know, there's always spittle on his lip. And it must have been distracting for, you know, people that were married to him or his leads that had to make out with him or whatever, because <laughs> I once I started noticing, I'm like, oh my God, there it is again, his soaking wet friggin' lippers. He's spitting on himself from his lips. I don't know, maybe it was a disformity of his teeth or his jaw, who knows what. But, but, yeah, it is noticeable. And there was a story about his scar that, that people say, oh, yeah, he got it in a bar fight. There was a lot of stories about it, but that's the most believable. No, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's not a pronounceable list, but it's certainly something going on there, which nobody really. It's funny, y'all. That's an obvious thing for someone to mention, even in biographies about him. And the most, you know, I read quite a few over the years. I was really interested in reading about him, reading about this time period in uh, filmmaking history. And more people are more apt to talk about how hung he was than about that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which is why, which is why, like, 18-year-old Lauren Bacall, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> more hard to believe was Clark Gable, because Carol Lombard spilled some beans about that in Mr. Three mm. Minutes. <laughs> And his wooden yeah. teeth. But anyway, another fun couple we can throw some there. But anyway, like we mentioned, he did a hell of a lot of films. He was actually in and out of Broadway originally. He, in mm. the beginning, he was almost doing acting as a part-time job, if you will. Like I mentioned, he came from money. 
kind of blew his shot at being in the, quote, upper crust of the time. And honestly, I don't think he gave a shit. He was probably glad to be rid of it. Uh, he had that kind of personality like me, where it's like, really? Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> so he wound up doing this stuff and kind of trying to make his own way. In the early days, he did several films that were just kind of whatever, or that you haven't seen even, and maybe they're not even available on video. So I'm going to start off with 1932, which is actually a very famous pre-code picture that a lot of people knew about well before it was in rotation and circulation again, which is Three on a Match. It's a Mervyn Leroy. An amazing bit of pre-code fun that should be mandatory viewing for every uptight Puritan out there nowadays. The film actually opens on a school girl with her legs spread and swinging while male classmates stand goggle-eyed and a rival grouses about how she hates black bloomers, confining, by the way, that hers are pink. <laughs> then they're all shown sharing a cigarette. These are kids, mind you. Making cracks about how their parents have stronger stuff and roll their own. The girls meet up again as adults. The one, Constance Bennett, is a jailbird turned burlesque quote, showgirl, I mean, stripper. Marion Davies, William Hurst's famous piece on the side, works the typing pool, and the quote, popular girl, Aunt Vorak, is rich and married to sleazy warrior Warren William, the king of pre-codes, as they always call him. I love his stuff. They're jealous, but she's bored and unhappy. So she takes her weird mop-headed kid and goes on a cruise where the first guy to feed her a line leads her down a reefer madness-style road to wild parties and ruin kid and tell. Then Bennett gets all moralistic, takes the kid off Dvorak's hands, then totally swaps places with her by landing her ex. So Bogart shows up long enough to menace the cruise ship guy who bounces gambling debt check and is now in deep with the local mobster. So he winds up trying to blackmail Warren William about his new wife's past. And when that fails, he kidnaps the kid for ransom. The Lindbergh baby was still recent news. It is not the world's greatest film, as you can hear from this, but in terms of stuff you would not expect to see from a film from, like, 1932, you know, these people growing up nowadays, like, oh, look, my grandparents are so straight-laced. <laughs> yeah, right, people were the same always. And before, Hollywood made a concerted effort to make things clean, which is kind of what they're doing nowadays again. This was reality. People are always, they've always been the same. And therefore, I think a lot of these films are really kind of mandatory viewing, so people can, you know, kind of get off the high horse, stop having a pull up your ass and realize that people are people. It's always been the same, and it's always going to be the same. Cut the shit. I enjoyed the film just for that. Uh, I didn't see this film for this show, but I, I have seen it. Yeah, I remember it being very outré, very sexy. Joan Blondell stood out more because it was a young Joan Blondell. I never really liked Betty Davis, and that no. could be on a tombstone somewhere, but... <laughs> <laughs> I always liked Blondell. Blondell and Constance Bennett, my big things back from this pre-code era. I, I barely remembered from when I saw it, Bogart in this, uh, probably confusing the remembrances with something else. But I do remember Edward Arnold, who would last in film and then move over to TV years later uh, as, he, as he matured into this very strange-looking uh, actor. Now, Betty Davis, I will say she looked kind of hot in this movie, but there's always this... Uh, I'm not here to discuss dirt, but she she always struck me as this, I don't know, dominatrix. You know, like, you, know, you would have to be a sub to Betty Davis if you're going to be with Betty. But very, uh, very much, you know, this is like where Spice came from. Again, I don't remember the film that much to discuss Bogart's contribution to it. He was very small in it. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, speaking of Betty Davis, she's actually in several films with him, including the next one, the 1936, The Petrified Forest. 
by Archie Mayo as the director. It's a dull, maudlin melodrama where bored desert flower Betty Davis, she's a bored desert flower, seriously, uh, gets really excited at the prospect of getting away from her dead-end life. She's the daughter of a diner manager in the middle of the desert. He's living out war fantasies despite coming back indistinguished. Her ostensible boyfriend is a washed-up football player. Everyone just hangs around this place reliving glory days that never actually happened. Unfortunately, her big out is a washed-up writer whose tale of being a boozy kept man and failed author strikes her as much more than it is. He has no money, so when the footballer gets belligerent, she slips him a buck and he hitches a ride with some rich passerby. Of course, nobody gets far because a mobster, Bogart of course, is holing up there on his way to meet up with his mall and run off to Mexico. This brings things almost into Key Largo territory on the service, but there's no big allegory of America shedding her isolationism to join Britain in defending the free world against Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo, who were trying to take it over in the name of fascism. There's no sex appeal like you would get with the Bacall films. All you get is a Popeye Betty Davis acting the ingenue with a fey drunken Leslie Howard, whose big moment of heroism is to sign his insurance policy over to her and beg Bogart to gun him down so that Davis actually has a chance to pursue her dreams and go on vacation in France. Uh, sure. Honestly, while nobody's a terrible actor here, except maybe the dumb jock, this crowd simply isn't on the same level as the cast of Key Largo would be. Bogart shows up late and keeps things comparatively subtle, but walks over the rest of the cast effortlessly. He isn't even trying. Apparently, there was some hoo-ha behind the scenes, and Edward G. Robinson almost got cast in Bogart's place. But Leslie Howard actually threatened to back out unless Bogart was in the cast. And it's this film that first brought Bogart to national attention at all. So that was a really big deal and pretty cool of the man to do. So hats off to Leslie Howard for that, without whom we may not be talking Humphrey Bogart today. But the film itself, eh, it's watchable, but it's really a dusty melodrama. Yeah, actually, I, and I was really curious to, to find out. I, I've actually found this out years and years ago that it was, uh, for a year or two, it was on Broadway. It's this really hard-hitting pre-code Broadway show. Yeah, all this shit was going on live on stage. And Leslie Howard, you know, it's interesting. He, he In a great many of his films, he, he came across almost as lightweight. But then I saw uh, quite a few films, mainly war films, where he came across as a lightweight with balls. So I always kind of liked him. And actually, he disappeared during World War Two because he, he, he re-enlisted and he, uh, you know, presumed dead somewhere. I think it was British uh, British uh, Air Force or something. So, yeah, he's one of these guys who were acting, went went into service and then presumed died in service. So I, I always liked Leslie Howard. Uh, he actually did this role, the same role he plays here on Broadway. And uh, Bogart's feral. He's feral in this. Yeah, for this time period, we're talking 1936, I believe, 35, 36. He's feral. It's like he just comes out looking. He hasn't shaved. And he's got a really nice, close, almost like a DA. You know, the very popular Italian haircut from the 70s. He's almost got like a DA cut. And he's thin. And he's and he's just like, he's like raw. And so having appeared in a number of pictures before this already, he just wipes the screen up with everybody, and you know you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the athlete kind of guy. There was Dick Ferrand who eventually tried to make a career as a pretty boy, but ended up being swathed in, in bandages as one of the mummies in one of the uh, Universal Mummy pictures. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know he tried. He just was too bland an actor. He was like a, a good-looking like football player guy, you know. Probably was a football player. God knows. Who cares? Nobody has it against him. But he just couldn't make it. He couldn't swing at it. But uh, really good picture. 
Actually, I'm looking at this now. Actually, so Bogart did do this on stage. He did play Duke Mantee on stage. I didn't say he didn't, but but curiosity killed the cat. You said, like, that Leslie Howard fought for him for this part. And it's actually still. I'm looking at it still right now. See, welcome to the world of multimedia people of the theatrical production with Bogart playing Duke Mantee, Leslie Howard, center stage. I don't know who's playing the woman. So Bogart and Howard did this on the stage, and it would make sense that if Warner Brothers thought Edward G. Robinson was more bankable and a name, in quotations, at this point, they would want to cast him. But then Leslie Howard probably figured, this guy's good. He's going to be great in the film, and I won't do it unless Bogart does it. You know, so really good film, raw, but it's also early on in the, in the game. We're going to drop a little, a little tidbit here. Bogart recreated this in 1955 for live TV with Henry Fonda in the Leslie Howard part, Lauren Bacall in the Betty Davis part, of course, and he re- he was Duke Manti again, much older, more mature. But, yes, there was a thing called live television, folks, and it was unusual, to say the least. All right, next. Oh, and I'll also mention, for those who don't know, you mentioned the DA before. That actually stands for duck's ass. It's the kind of hairdo that Elvis had, for example. We had the little cowlick in the front kind of stuck out. Basically a greaser hairdo. Yeah, yeah. Or Daffy Duck. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> well, you know, there's younger people listening as well, so I just want to make sure everybody knew we're on the same page. Oh, no. I'm glad you do things like that. Yes, if I make anchor, an, anachristic, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> those kind of comments. Anachronistic. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Which was is more drunk. Um, <laughs> anyway. No, no. Just sometimes you can't find that word, but it's in your head. Take it out. So no. the same year, no. he actually does something called Bullets or Ballots. We were talking about Edward G. Robinson. This is by a director mm. called William Cayley. You know, again, he's working with smaller-scale directors here, people that didn't have a real large ove before or after in a lot of cases, because it's early on. So it's an earlier, more serious version of the exact same film remade as The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse later. This time around, Edward G. Robinson is... Clitterhouse or Clitter? Never resist the urge to throw in a sex joke, yes. Uh, (laughs) I would like to go there. (laughs) The Clitterhouse, okay. This time around, Edward G. Robinson is a disgraced two-fisted cop. Just got back from the best cat house in town, to quote uh, Fester Pussycat. Uh, Edward G. Robinson is a disgraced two-fisted cop with a bookie girlfriend, Joan Blondell, (laughs) one of my favorites from that era, who gets the boot from the force and winds up involved with mobsters and a confidence racket. Of course, he rubs fellow gangster Bogart the wrong way, and when he bumps off the boss to take top spot, Robinson's already got most of the guys on his side, and then he proves Bogey right. The ostensible remake of this film is much stupider and more jokey, so if you do like the concept, this one's the one to go for. But like Dr. Clitterhouse, this is far more of a Robinson supposedly having sex appeal, can you believe this, and getting interest from the ladies. In this case, one of our preco favorites, John Bondell, who got in the numbers racket, of all people, Holiday Inn saucy maid Louise Beavers. She's the one that brought her into the numbers racket in the first place. <laughs> well, it's not exactly top-notch entertainment. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we get you on the numbers. You can make some money. Well, it's not exactly top-notch entertainment. It works well enough. And seeing Robinson undercranked and edited into some two-fisted action sequences was pretty surprising. And actually, in a way, it was kind of cool. So if you ever want to see Eversley Robinson kicking ass, Bogart, 
and Joan Blondell and Louise Beavers from Holiday Inn in the same movie, this is the one to go for. It's really not that bad. It's just, like I say, it's the same film was made over again, more poorly, a couple years later. Yes, was Louise Beavers her real name, or is that a Hollywood <laughs> show? Anyway, so... Uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed so well. It's funny, Joan Blondell was such a pre code yeah, she she was she was like a pre code and early code period, like amazing hottie when she aged and she still worked something changed. Oh yeah, wasn't she in Stay Away Joe or something? The Elvis movie we talked about during our show? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was scary. <laughs> but Barton McLean, who becomes a, uh, you know, by this time period, you know, an all too familiar face. Frank McHugh as well. Dick Purcell. To some people, these are names that might mean something. To a lot of you younger people, <laughs> you're like 40 and above. Dick <laughs> you know, Purcell's what? 40 and below. 40 <laughs> and below. Yeah, but these, these are like really names that you would see a lot in this time period. I love I love Bogart's names. Nick Bugs Fenner. You know, hey Nick. You know, so it's an interesting thing. You know, we, we, we talk a little about Bogart's distinct delivery and the sound of his voice, which made him unique. But the same thing could be said for a lot of these guys, like Edward G. Robinson. And in a way, a guy who really, really transcended any kind of public or media interpret uh, discussion or uh, interpretation of what he comes across as James Cagney, who started out in similar kind of films and by the end of his career was a song and dance man and doing different things altogether. Ended up in comedy. So, yeah, James Cagney. But, again, a fun, I, would, I would go to say this is a bit of a fun movie. The remake is not so much. But this is pointing, you know, we're skipping a lot of films. For those who might be, like, hardcore Humphrey Bogart fans, only for the sure amount of time available to us and the fact that the guy worked so much. And what we're able to see. Not all of these are out on DVD or easily available. So, Or, yes, that too. So next we're going to shoot to... The Black Legion, which is uh, the next year. Another Archie Mayo, believe it or not. Ouch, does this one come as a smack of the teeth to Trump's America? Bogart is an average American factory worker, jumpsuited and punching shit out on a drill press. He's laid back and likable and watches out for his pals. It's all pretty jovial in the beginning. But problems arise when the foreman gets promoted, leaving Bogart as the most experienced and likely candidate for the job. Of course, being corporate shits, the higher-ups skip over him and go to the young kid who's going to night school and full of, quote, new ideas, i.e. he's willing to work cheap and doesn't have tenure in an established pay scale. I've seen this time and time again on my last job, and it's fucking painful people in the real world. Understandably really pissed off, he hears a Trump-style nationalist speech, blaming all our problems on foreigners and unionizing socialists, and is quickly recruited by a fellow co-worker for an all-night clan off shoot. Real Americans, running around at night ganging up on helpless people. Sure enough, the first order of business is to burn down the farm of the nice old guy who runs the discount store, rival to the Legion Meeting House's store, and father of Bogey's new boss, killing two birds with one stone, and getting Bogey that new job and new car he couldn't afford. Of course, there's a price to pay here, with Bogey becoming increasingly dark, drunken, and abusive to everyone, losing his new job almost immediately by trying to recruit folks to the cause while each of his pals in turn feel the wrath of the Legion for various minor causes, getting promoted over him, trying to talk some sense into him, whatever. He even winds up losing his wife, pretty Ann Sheridan, and his book Patrick-looking freak of a kid in the process, winding up with the local floozy. When his best pal from the job tries to straighten him out, the Legion moves in and Bogey shoots him down, resulting in his arrest and the downfall of the organization in a bravura confession on a witness stand that names several members dumb enough to attend the case. And the film closes on this speech, which, honestly, every American needs to pay strict attention to right now in 2019. 
Your idea of patriotism and Americanism is hideous to all decent citizens. It violates every protection guaranteed them by the Bill of Rights in our Constitution, assuring us freedom of religious opinion and security of property against the attack of all forces. It's the cornerstone of true Americanism and must be jealously guarded if we are to remain a free people. We cannot permit racial or religious hatreds to be stirred up so that innocent citizens become the victims of judgments made in secret. Unless these forces are wiped out, this nation may as well abandon its Constitution, tear down its courts of justice, and revert to the barbarism of primitive violence. This would mean relinquishing everything that civilized men have won by prodigious effort over the course of the past five centuries. The American people made their choices long ago. Their blood and their sacrifices secured for us the basic human rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Their wisdom built the whole structure of our democratic form of government expressly to keep sacred and inviolate those same human rights. It is our duty to guard them zealously if we are to remain a nation of free men. As Abraham Lincoln said, our heritage is the spirit of the love of liberty in all men, in all lands everywhere. Destroy this spirit, and you have planted the seeds of despotism at your own door. Mic drop. That's what it closes out on. Think about it. When you go to the voting booth, remember that. Well, it's a, it's pretty amazing for Warner Bros. to do this. You know, uh, to do this film, Humphrey looks great in it. He looks young. He looks, yes, younger than the roles he's been playing beforehand. He looks fresh. He looks, he looks like he's, I think, was he involved? I, you know, I can't remember because, as I've said, I did read some Hogarth biographies, but it's been a while. So I don't know if he was involved in the, the putting together the production of this film, but it was something, something that he believed in. And you know what? <clears throat> Clan, Black Legion, secret organizations. You know what? <sighs> here's, here's something that's going to shock people. Leave their, their mouths open. In the 1960s, which is not that long ago, folks, black people were, were not allowed to sit beyond the back of the bus. And they had their own fountains and separate entrances. They had their own fountains, separate bathrooms, separate entrances. They, some were not allowed in bathrooms. Some were not allowed in restaurants for whites only. Mm-hmm. So how old is this film? 1930-something? 37. 37. And so, you know, how long is this shit going on? And so, obviously, kudos to the studio for doing this and everybody associated. And Sheridan, very pretty in this film. And the speech at the end doesn't really so much tackle the key racism points, but it tackles other points which are politically charged. Welcome to America Today. So it's a very good film. If you can find it, I certainly highly recommend it. I did watch this, rewatch this for the show. Really good. So after the same year, 1937, he does Stand In. This is not one that's available on DVD or blue, sadly enough. It's actually directed by an old Max Sennett director, those of you who know his famous comedies and shorts, who did a lot of Bing Crosby ones, which are really good, by the way. A fellow named Tate Garnett. Now, here's a film that baffles me as to why it never got released. As a younger man, I remember watching this one at AMC several times and getting more than a few laughs out of its skewering of the inner workings of studio-era Hollywood and how it took jabs at a few pedestal-perched personages of the era. But I have no idea how it hold up all these years later because, unfortunately, like I mentioned, it's never been seen since. Do you remember this one at all? No, I, I didn't even know about know that you were going to mention it, but I, I'm kind of looking at it now. And then, So it was shown on AMC back in the days. Lots, yeah. And, uh... Yeah, I, I don't know anything it's about it. It's quite good. It's all about uh, stage mamas and everything else, and you know, all the personality conflicts going on behind the scenes with directors and lighting directors. And I see he's third bill, though. Um, is this a poster uh, represent? Uh, yeah. I don't know. So after a couple more films, uh, 1938 is the one I mentioned before, The Amazing Dr. Clutterhouse. <laughs> 
<laughs> Anatoly Litvak, if you ever heard of that guy. I never oh, I have. Yes, yes. No sentiment, just routine, like any other business. Tell me, don't you ever get any pangs of conscience like what you're doing is wrong and opposed to the well-being of society? Would you ask that same question of a stockbroker who robs widows and orphans? Or one of them society mugs who runs all those fire-trapped tenement houses where the rats and bugs eat you alive? The kind of place I was born in? No, the way I look at it, you, me, all of us here are more on the level than those guys. Character actor special with Edward G. Robinson is a doctor so obsessed with the physiological reactions of criminals that he decides to become one, checking his own blood pressure and gathering other experiential measurements along the way. He winds up getting involved with a gang run by a woman, Claire Trevor, with dopey Alan Jenkins and Bogartis, two of her head enforcers, who decide he's okay when he gets mouthy and more or less bullies the local cops out of harassing him by throwing some basic law at them. And of course, defying all logic and suspension of disbelief, the youngish blonde crime boss is supposed to fall for short, fish-lipped, and kind of dumpy Robinson. It's pretty stupid and cheesy, it's neither a dark, gripping crime film, or as funny as some misdirected satire, so it fails in most respects. Even in his bit part, Bogey stands out above the ostensible leads. Oh, and it's another one where John Huston and Bogey work together, which would result in some very good and some very bad films along the way. Yeah, Huston he was one of the screen, screenplay um, I would say a polisher. It was based on a play by Barry Lyndon not that Barry Lyndon, but another Barry Lyndon. And he was a script polisher. And they would work together more often down the road. But interesting because... <laughs> After, like, making head, headway with some really interesting films, Bogart's kind of, like, goes back a couple steps because his character's called Rocks Valentine. You can see where they're... Wait, what's the word here? They're, they're kind of stereotyping him, you know, for this for this picture. Typecasting. Typecasting and stereotyping and the, and the fact that he, he has to take more than a few steps back for not obvious for non-obvious reasons. They're actually stymie me. Why studios in this time period, up until the early 40s, were trying to make Edward G. Robinson the man with the women? Because, you know, you could make him a family man. You could make him a father, doting husband. You could make him a divorcee looking for someone. You know, you could make him a late-in-life fellow because he's another one of these guys when he was young. He looked older. But to make him a woman's man, you know? It's just, you know... The best thing, the nicest thing you can say about him is, okay, yes, he definitely pulled up the gangsters. He maybe looked like an Al Capone, but are you thinking, oh, yeah, there's a hottie, all the women's going to be a chick, chick magnet? No. <laughs> well, if that happened, I don't, I don't want to meet the chicks. <laughs> but, so... But there's somebody for everybody. Isn't that... Hasn't that been That's said? True. It has been said. That's true. Next. All right, so I went to 1939 for Dark Victory. Edmund Goulding's the guy that directed this, who actually did Douglas Fairbanks' Reaching for the Moon, Gable and Lombard's No Man of Her Own, and Grand Hotel. Soapy women's weepy that made pop-eyed viper-tongued Betty Davis a thing. Here she's still, strangely enough, in her wide-eyed ingenue phase, if you can believe that she ever fits such a role, much akin to what she delivered in the Petrified Forest a few years earlier. Bogey's a bit player here again. He's the gruff, stable hand who confesses he's always had a thing for her in one scene. He's not in a whole hell of a lot more than the film. Yeah, Davis delivers a strong, likable performance, just like she did in The Petrified Forest, though. This time she's a poor little rich girl instead of a wide-eyed dreamer of a poor girl, but seriously? Here she's a very independent, even stubborn young socialite who's begun having odd accidents, with her horse riding, falling down the stairs, burning her hands and not noticing. So when her, quote, secretary-slash-friend, seriously, drags her to the local specialist, who just happens to be hanging up his practice to go into cellular research, it's no surprise that she's working on a big-ass brain tumor. The guy operates, but it's only a temporary fix. She and the doctor fall in love and marry, but she's still going to die. But at least she dies happy. End. 
I don't know why people love this kind of shit. Seriously. I mean, this kind of Hallmark Channel women's soap opera melodrama was big on radio. Then it carried over to TV, and it's remained in film throughout its history. From the earliest sounds to crap like Beaches and Lorenzo's Oil and whatever they're making like this nowadays. Maybe this sick human interest stuff makes people feel better about their own miserable lives. Seeing people who actually have more problems and worse prognoses. Me, it just makes me feel sick and incredibly depressed about the futility of life and human existence. Who the fuck wants that? I am so happy. Uh, George Brent is in this. He was a guy throughout his time period, very quite handsomely, handsome, striking looking, actually. He had a very, one of those thin pencil, thin mustaches right above the lip, which nowhere else. It's like a British kind of looking thing. He appeared in a number of things. He plays the doctor. She kind of like falls in love with Ronald Reagan. Know that name? He's also in this one of his early roles, as well as Henry Travers, another thespian we would see quite a few times in these kind of films. Humphrey is on the peripheral. He's in this for a little bit, but it's all Betty Davis's show. Still not Betty Davis. You don't want to hear anything about, but still. Hopefully we're going to go to Return of Dr. X. Yeah, so actually that is the next one I wanted to go to, The Return of Dr. X. It's directed by a Marshall Kane who did All Through the Night. Bogart takes a really weird turn in this, his only horror film, and yeah, it's kind of a horror. You know how Universal started off with all those Carl Lemley classics, stuff like Dracula, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Black Cat, The Raven, The Old Dark House, and Werewolf of London? And then watched all those series kind of degenerate into increasingly smaller budgeted programmers like Frozen Ghost, The Brute Man, and Black Castle, with lesser and aging actors throughout the course of a decade or so? Well, this is one of the latter group, with no-name and monogram-slash-PRC-level actors like Hunts Hall, <laughs> Wayne Morris, and Dennis Morgan padding out the cast as, you know, the hero lead in this Dr. Powell-slash-sidekick. Bogey looks lost and embarrassed, tending to stand there goggle-eyed with his mouth hanging open in one of those short-sleeved dentist jackets, and rogue skunk streaks in his hair <laughs> as a dead research scientist-slash-doctor's assistant who, like the no-name Bernadette Peters in Blazing Saddles doing with Marlena Dietrich impressions, famous actress, that sets everyone into looking into all this in the first place is brought back to life by the main baddie with synthetic blood which apparently isn't good enough leaving them as de facto vampires who need to kill to survive this all could have been a lot more entertaining were it not so chaste and squeamish about showing not blood necessarily but the attacks some action anything really other than a bunch of spare interior set rooms and a whole hell of a lot of talk again this is exactly what happened to horror under the code so it's not the utter shit show everyone seems to claim it is if you accept the fact that it's on the level of something like the mummy's ghost there's no real monster and if you've got a really uncomfortable, laugh-out-loud, silly-looking Bogart in a role that he should never have been cast in. Otherwise, it's typical of its type. Well, it's a Warner Brothers picture, which is really interesting. But at 60 minutes, more or less, it was probably designed as a programmer. They're probably looking at the box office of these Universal pictures and saying, who do we have? Okay, who do we have that's unusually looking? And they looked at this guy. But except that they're already programming him and billing him and casting him to be somebody in more weighty films, let me say. Instead, they take several steps back. They just thought that Bogart's unique appearance was enough to put him in a horror film. Also, they did this weird thing where they gave him the shock of uh, gray to white hair. It's a black and white film over the, the middle of his head to show that he's an undead Hello. Yeah, I said rogue, but you could also think Bride of Frankenstein with that. Could be, yeah. Uh, Casper, I would say good-looking, but actually B-level uh, actors. Dennis Morgan and Wayne Morris, who you didn't really see doing 
leading role. You know, Bogart's already doing leading roles by this time. It's a very strange film. Why does it happen? If if you happen to own some of the posters or lobby cards from this and they're originals, you know, can you hold on to them, frame those things, because I'm sure they're worth quite a lot. When I first saw this, I was like, what is this? What is going on here? Uh, yeah, I'm sure he did it because he was probably contracted to Warner's at this time period. And he goes, what the hell, I'll try it. But he does he deliver a terrible performance? No. He's certainly uncomfortable. Yeah, it it's really is kind of close to being a terrible performance because he doesn't want to be there. And right. as far as I've ever heard, he never wanted to talk about this film. It's one of the maybe two or three that he did. And he actually made a comment kind of obliquely saying, yeah, Warner, you know, I was in the contract. I made some terrible pictures. I made some of the worst pictures ever made there. And I think he was really kind of looking at this one. And the whole time, like I said, he's kind of goggle-eyed with his mouth hanging open. And you can tell he does not want to be there. He doesn't want to deliver. He's just like, get me out of this quick. So it's not good yeah. performance. Things were changed in one year, but they drive by the night. Yes. For sure. So they drive by night is the next one. It's by Raul Walsh, who did I Sierra right after this. It's a dark, almost but not quite noir crime melodrama that has Bogart as brother and partner to fellow gangster film vet George Raft in trucking. Yep, this one's all about hauling string beans to Utah, as Frank Zappa once crooned. They're living on the balls of their ass with a sleazy dispatcher who holds back on paying them what they're owed, even sicking a loan shark on them to repossess their truck when some joyriding teens force them off the road into an accident that runs them into a tree, snaps their tire in half, and leaves Raph limping back to the local diner to call him for help. Great boss they got there. As it happens, the truckers band together to toss the guy out on his ass, and they not only get their tire, but threaten the dispatcher into paying them back pay before decking him. But of course, now they need to find a new source of income. Meantime, they pick up a sassy truck stop waitress. Raph takes a shine, too. Again, Ann Sheridan. Who's hitchhiking away from her gig after the boss tried to molest her, and they wind up becoming a thing. When these doggy dog truckers get into a fistfight over a parking spot at the local drop-off point, the skipper's drunken and boisterously obnoxious dad, Alan Hale Sr., gets a kick out of it and offers them a job. But Raft is reluctant because Hale's hot-pants trophy wife, Ida Lupino, has been trying to get in his pants for years. Even so, he hires them, they pay off the loan shark, and he gets a desk job as traffic manager, but this just leaves him closer to Lupino, who decides to offer Hubby for a better shot at Raft, and then promotes him to half-owner, which leaves him looking like the guilty party. Meantime, Sassark Bogart falls asleep at the wheel and loses an arm. It all works out in the end, sort of, but it's a bit too heavy on the soap for my taste, despite a hot to trot Lupino in her prime and Sheridan at her sassiest. So it's got its high points and its low points. Oh, it's, it's got a really interesting cast for this time period, um, especially some, for those of you uh, who watch a lot of these movies, uh, recognizable actors in bit parts. John Hamilton, who you, you recognize from Batman, uh, Charles Wilson, who show up in quite a number of pictures. It's got a heavy, heavy reputation as, like, one of the big noirs. Raoul Walsh also worked with Errol Flynn in some of his better films, too. So, <laughs> I always had an issue with Ida Lupino. You know, I, I she became a very interesting director. Yes. One of the first. One of the first women directors, yes. One of the first women directors. Maybe the first women director. I don't know. Could be. Which, <laughs> that's a lot of fucking dick swinging to do that, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm talking in the sense of a female coming up today. You got it? I got it. Yeah. Seems a tough so, road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's the Ida Lupino biography, Hollywood? You know, we only go back 10 years, folks. Come on. I think it's it's long overdue. Long overdue. Anyway, uh, enjoyable film in this sense for me, in the sense that it's gritty and yet it's very homogenized in a way. It's uh, Warner Brothers. You know, Humphrey's still stuck in this Warner Brothers contract. So the movie's going so far, but 
a much same director, much better film. A lot of the same cast members returned for High Sierra. Yeah, so High Sierra, of all the full things, starting on a caper with a woman and a dog, an unusually old-looking Bogart. I'm still not sure whether he let his entire size go gray or if he shaved him Hitler-style. Either way, it looks ridiculous and ages him pretty badly. Moves from prominent sideband and bit player to headlining star with this oddity penned by his drinking buddy, John Houston. It's much the same pictures you become known for, almost always with a claustrophobic setting, likely with everyone holed up for one reason or another, and a whole lot of tension, sexual and otherwise, between cast members thrown together therein. He's an ex-con just recently pardoned, but already called in by an old crony to head a heist for him. His partners include Crazy Cornell Wilde of Naked Prey and No Blade of Grass fame, and Smokey Ida Lupino, who'd soon become possibly the first female director of note, as well as a long-running noir starlet, as we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more melodrama than usual, where there's some bizarre love triangle between Lupino, who's hot for Bogart, Bogey, who's hot for underage former screen Nancy Drew Joan Leslie, who, by the way, has both a club foot, and here's the last part of the triangle, a fiancé. Despite paying for an operation on her foot, when Bogey finally resigns himself to the fact that nothing's going to happen with her, he gives in and uses poor Lupino as an easy meat rebound. Oh, and there's the heist, which they pull off, but gets pretty much everyone in the cast killed by the end. Yay? Hollywood used to churn out these overly melodramatic potboilers like this by the dozen after the code or proactive compliance with the threat thereof, turned all their scripts decidedly prudish. We'd have a few more strong contenders in the late 30s and early 40s, and noir bubbling on their radar for a decade more, but... This whole period of filmmaking is often quite unwatchable for this very reason. I tend to gravitate to the early talkies in 29 to around, eh, maybe 32, 33, and then it gets spotty, mostly mysteries, noir, screwball comedies, Hitchcock and Bogart films, until sanity got restored in the very late 60s for an all-too-brief decade and change of amazing auteurism, arthouse, and grindhouse. This one may have pointed the way to much better films in Bogart's career, even this very same year, but in and of itself, I'm sorry, but this one kind of sucked. So, you obviously have a very higher opinion of it, so what's your take? Well, no, I mean, slightly, slightly. I, I enjoyed it. Apparently, Bogey, because you started out the show, Bogart was known for his liking of alcohol, was was drinking with John Houston, and um, it was they were friends. They became friends. And um, the odd thing about it, though, this was like the, one of the breakthroughs in Bogart's career. This jumped him up after this picture to leading man status. It's another one of these by you know by the numbers wrote gangster pictures. Yes, the it being that it's Warner's, I believe it's still Warner Bros. Yes, being that it's Warner Bros. It's surprisingly, I I always thought the film was scaled back, although the budget was kind of high on this for its time period, almost five hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money in nineteen forty bucks. It's 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 a claustrophobic yarn. It's funny. You reminded me there were a couple uh, Twilight Zone episodes that took place in one set settings with pitching cast members complaining to one another until the comeuppance happens. Um, but I like, I always like Bogart. And so it's very stagey. Here's the thing. This is based on a novel, but it's not based on a stage play or a stage play version of a novel. So here's the thing. People watching it today might think it's, oh, this is probably a film version of a stage play or was based on a Broadway or Broadway play. It didn't happen that way. So, I don't know, it's it's one time that Bogart, working with Raoul Walsh, didn't turn into diamonds, you know. But, uh, far be it for us two people to say it did very well at the box office. It uh, in, in the money back then, it made almost $2 million. So, it was a huge hit, and all of a sudden, people are looking at him a lot differently. Uh, Ida Lupino, we already mentioned, uh, Arthur Kennedy, who would outlive Bogey and actually 
become something of a Euro, uh, Euro genre film presence, isn't this? As well as Barton McLean at Cornell Wilde, you already mentioned. So there's a lot of interesting people in this, but does it transcend the fact that the film's a little fucking odd? No. But Houston comes back as director. Yeah. 1941, The Maltese Falcon, which is a John Houston. It's actually his first directorial job. If they hang you, I'll always remember you. The first time John Houston actually directs Bogart rather than just writing a screenplay. And it's a big improvement over what they've been delivering to date, despite its confusing plot. Something can also be said of his de facto sequel, The Big Sleep. One of the earliest film noir with a peak or a bogey as Dashiell Hammett's hard-boiled, hard-luck private eye Sam Spade. The plot's a bit convoluted, though not as messy as the sequel would prove to be. Scary old Mary Astor, woefully miscast as a noir femme fatale, drops by the office of Spade and his partner under a false name and with a cock and bull story. His partner takes the job figuring out a score with her, but gets gunned down. When the guy from her story turns up dead as well, everyone's pointing the finger at Bogart, even his cop pal Ward Bond, the man who shaved off Hitler's mustache and Hitler dead or alive, all of which he doesn't help by being weirdly casual about the whole thing. He's a cold enough fish to shrug his shoulders at his partner biting it, doesn't even want to see the widow and tell his secretary to repaint the windows to remove the guy's name the next morning without even a hint of emotion. Then he falls for Astor for some reason, and before you know it, Astor, sleazy Peter Laurie, cackling slob Sidney Greenstreet, and Popeye Delisha Cook Jr. are all up in his face, seemingly changing allegiances and vying for possession of the artifact of the film's title. While a tangled mystery and cross between hardboiled crime fiction and nascent film noir, the real charms here are in the memorably odd caricatures presented by its character actor heavy cast, and Houston's often an interesting use of shadow and framing, with Dutch angles and quirky mise-en-scene being nearer to the day. There's also a nice scene script-wise where he manages to turn each of them on each other in turn, fanning the flames that already exist to disrupt any fragile partnership the four antagonists manage to build over the course of events, and Crazy Cook even starts tearing up with rage all through about five or ten minutes of chat. This is quite probably the picture, I mean, even though we had the Petrified Forest, even though we had High Sierra, they were kind of leading to this, that made Bogart's rep as a tough guy in lead, but it's a very one note compared to roles he'd done both prior to and after this. So it's a very good film, a strong noir, but it's sexless. The Code Authority even prevented Warners from reissuing the 1931 pre-code original for that very reason with Ricardo Cortez, who, by the way, was very Jewish. <laughs> Ricardo Cortez. He looked like Zeppo Marx. And it's probably why they cast the boring Aster in the part. Far from Bogart's best. But it's a good one. Oh, it, I couldn't add too much to what you said. Uh, yeah, it's it's a classic film. It's legendary. It's... Yeah, Maltese Falcon. It's it's been, this movie's been remade and remade and and stolen from hell. Porn took from this. You remember that movie? What was that? With Reggie Nadler? Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called Murder Baby. Is that it? With with John Leslie? Yeah, I think it is. There's a lot. Of, I mean, actually, Peter Lorre looks good in this. You know, he's still thin. You know, and 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 it's funny that Houston knew. How Peter Lorre was already well known in Germany before he came over here. He did something called M, and people should check that out. Fritz Lang film. What year was You'll Find Out the one he did with Kay Kaiser? Because he was still young and thin in oh, that one. And he also pulled off a good job there. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Kay Kaiser, Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre, and someone else. I think that Lugosi. might have been might have been around forty, yeah. possibly. In any case, Peter Lorre looks really good. This almost I would say svelte, and. Houston, oddly enough, shoots him looking up most of the time, so giving him a, a sense of height. I like that. Uh, you know, which which means your director was sensitive 
to which is which belies a lot of shit we heard from about John Houston over the last <laughs> fifty years. Yeah. But but it but it appears, you know, maybe this is not all true. You know, he he obviously shot Peter Laurie a lot that way in this film. Uh gave him a sense you know, it only not only adds to a sense of Germanic foreign menace, but it gave him a sense of height. At Green Street it was a big guy. You know, he, he mainly shot him medium shot most of the time. So as 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 opposed to close up, so not to make him seem like such a huge guy. Very interesting uh, stuff that he he had his DP do. Uh, Boogie looks good in this. A little weary. I always thought he looked a little weary, but maybe he was supposed to. Now here's the Mary Esther problem. She's already a mature actress, or an actress who was made up to be more mature than her own age. You know, this is still the early years. We could have, we have seen, and we could have, you know, we. We could have went with anyone. Choosing to go with Mary Astor really puts a big swing in this. It, it, it just really... Let's put it this way. Mary Astor was boring in Red Dust in 1932 against Gene Harlow. Okay. That was like eight years, ten years earlier. At this point, it's just, like I said, it's it's this code saying, we don't want any sex. They actually threatened Warners. Okay, this is popular. You cannot re-release the 1931 one because there's too much sex in it. So, you know, it's it was probably them playing their cards safe. Mm. But there is nothing about Mary Astor that says, ooh, yeah, hot femme fatale. She's just like, I don't know, like a church lady. I mean, there's, there's nothing about her at all. Well, and the best they can pull off mm. is like a cold embrace. Like, okay, let me give you a hug like you're giving your, your buddy a hug, saying, okay, goodbye, see so you have to get back from a war. Well, that's one of the problems with this, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really dry in that respect. And that's one of his major failings. But Peter Lorre is actually interesting in a lot of respects because I, I think in a lot of ways, and you might not have thought of this one, you can compare him to Klaus Kinski. Mm. He was kind of that personage for that era in that uh, in the studio machine over here. But it's a it's a good little tidbit you threw out there off the cuff because if Peter Lorre was allowed to go with the flow, shall we say, who knows what would have happened with his career? True. Maybe he would have turned into the real proto Klaus. What's <laughs> the do- craziness? All Through the Night? Yes, I was. So, 1942, All Through the Night. It's actually Vincent Sherman, the guy who gave us Return to Dr. X a year or so earlier. Those babies are strictly no good from way down deep. This ain't no penny anti gangsters trying to move in on territory. These guys want to take over the whole country. So what? Makes no difference to me who runs the country so long as they stay out of our way. That's just it. They're not going to stay out of your way. They'll tell you what time you get up in the morning, what time you go to bed at night. They'll tell you what to eat, what kind of clothes you can wear, and what you drink. They'll tell you what paper you can read. Up till now, we've only had the preliminaries. This is the main bout. we got to stand up and stop this quick. <clears throat> Hello, America. Bokey takes the lead in this film noir where he's partners in a nightclub, who, when he doesn't get his favorite baker's cheesecake at the local Greasy Spoon, seriously, is actually pissed off enough to head down to the bakery to see why not. Of course, the old guy's very obviously Yiddish, despite his Americanized name, and thanks to a visit from the young, more dangerous-looking Peter Lorre before he got bloated and sickly, is very dead. There's all sorts of weird asides and business like his fat, domineering mother inveigling her way into everything. He's falling for a boring nightclub singer who winds up his real-life wife after this film. She was the crazy one that was threw knives at him and tried to slice her own wrists and set the house on fire. And Bogey winding up as his prime suspect in the murder. But for the rest of the film, this unlikely hero plays private eye, investigating who'd want to kill the old baker and why. And of course, it's a Nazi fifth column ring. 
a surprisingly decent film with a strong cast. They even snuck Jackie Gleason and Phil Silvers in for cameo parts. You probably never heard of this one, but you should. And sadly, like so many movies about standing up against the bully or the evils of world Nazism or communism, it's a lot more timely in 2019 than it has been in many decades. Wake up! What the fuck's wrong with everybody? Come on! So, anyway. Well, you mentioned Jackie Gleason. Phil Silvers, too. Mm-hmm. They were budding comedians who had a bit of a uh, following starting but they were known as kind of ribald comedians, and they really didn't want them in this picture. But uh, apparently Jack L. Warner, who was Mr. Big Cheese, like the god of Warner Brothers, called the director and said, you put them in this picture. I don't care where. Frank McHugh, another familiar face, Judith Anderson, long-time Broadway British stage veteran. Uh, she became Dame Judith Anderson. In fact, she was in Star Trek Three. remember? Uh She's in this. Uh, William Demarest. I love Lucy. Uh, Wallace Ford. Barton McLean. Who? You know, let's think about this now. How many pictures? Is, Barton must have had some kind of relationship with Bogart. It's like, well, like, I'll take care of you. You know, because he's almost in every fucking movie at this time period. I noticed that. Martin Kosleck playing Steindorf. Is that typecasting or what? Uh, and Conrad Vate. Yes, but Conrad Vate's like. He's like, you know, second build. But, but you know, Martin Cost, like, what is that? The Flesh Eaters. Yes, the Flesh Eaters. You know, uh, he became a stereotypical Nazi evil fuck scientist. It's an interesting movie. It's Some people think it's like, it's the greatest thing since cheese. But it's it's very, for a movie, it's not based on a stage play. It's very stagey. So there, you have it. But it's definitely worth seeing. I mean, you probably never heard of the damn thing, but it's definitely worth seeing, especially nowadays, unfortunately. So, same year, John Huston comes back with Across the Pacific. Ah, there's a Canadian for you. Let them take their clothes off and they're happy. John Huston said it again. Once again, to middling results at best, unfortunately. This time, Bogey's a military type who gets kicked out of the service for stealing right at the dawn of World War II. He heads straight to Canada and tries to enlist there, but they balk when they hear his name. I guess we shared a blacklist in those days. But he keeps on trying, making this bizarre leap in logic. Maybe Chiang Kai-shek won't be so particular. Uh, yeah, he was an anti-communist, but he's also a fascist dictator when we're still going for war against global fascism. Um, anyway, he hops on the Japanese freighter to head to Taiwan so he can become a de facto brown shirt. Can you believe this plot? And he runs into his Maltese Falcon pal, Sidney Greenstreet, who's a Tojo sympathizer, and scary old Mary Astor. <laughs> Remember... Mine's bigger than yours. <laughs> That's a line in there. As it turns out, Bogey's actually a U.S. spy tailing Green Street Master who are plotting with the Japanese to bomb Pearl Harbor, or as it was changed to in this movie, Panama. That's really all there is to it. Unlike arguably similar efforts like Hitchcock's Secret Agent, there's simply not much to recommend here, particularly with a pedestrian direction, mediocre script, drab lighting, and a perfectly shit score that alternates between goofily jaunty and cartoon-level bombastic at the drop of a hat. The score really sucks. I'm sorry, it's like a John Williams score or something. About the best you can say is Charlie Chan, number one, and number two sons, Key Luke and Victor Sen Young, are both present in the same film. As she proved in both Red Dust and the Maltese Falcon in turn, Mary Astor could spoil free lunch. She's the nasty Wonder Bread bologna and American cheese sandwich your grandma used to love for reasons incomprehensible to modern man. So we're, while doing a show, it's making me think, why is Mary Astor turning up in all these movies? Something I don't to know. Ponder. There's a reason, and we don't know what it is. Anyway, it's co-directed by Vincent Sherman, who's didn't 50-50 by Bogey, and John Huston. So Vincent Sherman and John Huston co-directed this. Okay, but Huston did not work on a screenplay from what I could see. Based on a book, actually, a Saturday Evening Post story, short story, you got a good cast, uh, except for 
let's say the debatable Mary Astor, which who we already discussed, it's got more of a positive rep than it actually does. If you like it, go for it. I think this time period starts changing things for him, like Sahara. Really interesting movie. Yeah, so I did not cover that one, but go ahead if you want to. All right, Sahara. So, okay, we're in World War II right now, uh, you know, and got to remember, a lot of these uh, European emigres are coming over to the U.S. getting work, uh, beside the guy who developed the project to put man on the moon and shoot missiles into space and kill monkeys. Uh, all those German scientists. But we had a lot of emigres coming from Poland, and Zoltan Korter was one of them. At this point, Humphrey's working for Columbia. And so uh, let's do a World War II picture. We're like knee deep into World War II. Sahara is an interesting movie. We wouldn't see the likes of this picture again, probably so effectively until the mid to late 60s Euro Diodato or Sergio Martino uh, uh, European like war films. It's pretty good. Actually, in a way, I really like this. A lot of tank pictures. It's a tank picture. A bunch of guys, a lot of good actors in a tank movie. We're in a tank movie. We're going to get the Germans. We got interesting cast. We got Bogart, Sergeant Joe Gunn. I like Joe. He's an American name, right? Dan Derrier was really popular for a long time. Lloyd Bridges, father of Jeff. Uh, <laughs> it's weird. J. Carol Nash is in this thing. Lots of very familiar faces. It's, it's basically, if you saw that, it should have been a better movie with Brad Pitt about the tank guys uh, during World War II. Inglorious Bastards? No, no, something after that. No, it's just like, you know, these are true stories. You had you had guys in small tanks, and they were, you know, roaming across the uh, German countryside and sometimes in the urban landscape, and they were just trying to, like, stay alive and like, get to their locations and do what they had to do. Pretty interesting movie is... But the problem was it doesn't doesn't convey any sense of urgency. When you kept going on about guys together in a small, confined space, I thought you were going to go village people, like, you know, in the Navy. What am I going to do in a submarine? Oh, <laughs> see, I wasn't going there. <laughs> I, I think Humphrey would have bailed but, at that point. Yeah, Maybe. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I think it was the year prior to the one you just mentioned. <laughs> He did the infamous, or famous, if you will, Casablanca. First of all, you have to realize this is from the hand of Michael Curtiz. He was a go-to director for many years in Hollywood, churning out all sorts of pictures. But he had some definite gems in him. He actually directed what remained my all-time favorite old horror film, Dr. X, which only matched by The Black Cat, The Raven, and Draco. Those are the only ones that even come close to it. Love Dr. X. The original we're talking about, not The Return of Dr. X with Bogart. And it's almost as good early Technicolor companion piece, Mystery of the Wax mm. Museum. Right there, the man's on top and of my Captain Blood. Captain Blood, some, uh, he did quite a few really good Errol Flynn movies. Yeah, I was going to say, The Kennel Murder Case with another of my favorite old-time Hollywood leads, mm-hmm. William Powell, The Walking Dead with Boris Karloff, one of my father's favorite adventure pictures, The Seahawks yes. with Errol Flynn, you mentioned Captain Blood, Gay Camp favorite, Mildred Pierce, Noir Ghost Story, The Unsuspected with Claude Rains, King Creole with Elvis, who we did a show on. It gets spottier once you leave the 30s, but you can see that a film in the first place, at least until the late 60s and early 90s, when things got interesting again for a decade or two. So, here's a film that everyone seems to put on the top of their greatest films ever lens list. And no, it's definitely not that. 
That said, you can't possibly walk away saying, damn, that film sucked. It won't live up to the grandiose expectations others put upon it, like yourself apparently, but it's indisputably a good film and one with a very pointed subtext about American isolationism and how that can't stand when you have the likes of Hitler and Tojo bringing down the entire free world around us, though as we'll see other films in Bogart's over address the same ground far more strongly. Bogie's a gin silk club owner in French-owned Casablanca. He considers his place the Switzerland and the juke joints, and true to the source material, everybody comes to Rick's, both Free and Vichy. Gradually, his sympathies get stirred, first by helping a young couple get out by rigging a bet in their favor, then in a minor incident that gets his place closed down when a bunch of Germans drop in singing the Horse Vessel song or whatever, and he lets the band join in on La Marseillaise to drown them out. And finally, when he pushes Bergman back to their hubby and arranges for them both to get out so he can go on doing his work with the Resistance Underground. That's really all there is to the film, which is likely part of its appeal. It's painted in extremely broad strokes. Apparently, the prior year's Maltese Falcon was a big enough deal that both Laurie and Greenstreet get cameos, with the latter framed by an inside joke shadow of the Falcon on a perch in front of his face the whole time. Seriously, look for it. Claude Rains gets a nice role as a sympathetic French military cop. I guess it's sort of akin to the Carabinieri in Italy. And the film's big, quote, happy ending is actually between Bogart and him, which modern viewers can choose to view straight as intended or skew it to imply an entirely different subtext of the film. Casablanca's pluses beyond most of the acting and the moody, shadow-filled nighttime lighting or the fact that most of it's setting in one location, namely his nightclub, and occasionally the street around it. Where it loses ground a bit is the hard-to-buy romance flashback, which may be deliberate to show how memory always paints a rose-tainted picture on events that weren't necessarily so. But its chief win comes from the aforementioned, and quite timely, if less pointedly stated in other Bogart films as ilk, commentary on American isolationism in the face of a clear and present menace, i.e. the imminent totalitarian takeover of the entire globe. These days, so-called, quote, patriots actually seem to welcome that. Hello, all your right-leaning fans of Trump, Bojo, Le Pen, and so forth. Not to mention what's going down in Greece and Germany, but back then, people knew the score. Sit back and watch, and they win it all, you inclusive. The one glaring problem with the film, though, isn't the acting, which is fine to good from all the leads, save perhaps Bergman, who really only brought her A-game and any degree of sensuality to Notorious from Hitchcock. But in the Midwestern Hallmark card schmaltz angle, it tries to sell itself as some grand romance, but it's that code-approved leave-room-for-the-Holy-Spirit-type dancing. Barely hug if it calls for desperate rapturous embrace, and your steamy fare if you get a two-second chase kiss with a woman who, from her stiff performance here, you'd think could barely act, much less deliver any sense of passion and fire. And even then, Bourbon's role is written, is flawed. Her character's enough of a self-absorbed bitch not to smell her own line of shit when she goes on about how shocked she was that Bogart seems to hate her now, despite the fact that she ran off on him, and now she's about to skip out on her hubby for a fling with the ex. I mean, seriously, look at that flashback. She skips off without a word, disappears from the guy's life for a few years, and expects him to greet her with open arms and start all over with her hubby a few tables over in the same room yet. The only shocker here is that Bogey didn't kick her ass to the curb immediately rather than waiting a few days. There's been a decades-long bullshit assessment of this film by critics and those who take what they say as gospel that this is one of the greatest films of all time or some horse shit. And saying that just proves you haven't really seen that many films or spent that much time outside of summer blockbusters and Oscar contenders. Among that sorry crowd of surefire lowest common denominator pleasers, it's arguable. But it's not even best among Bogart's filmography, much less if you bring folks like Hitchcock or make things global with Art House or expand the B-movies and the more consistently entertaining exploitation directors. Casablanca is not bad at all. In fact, it's good. But it's far from the best of anything. And while lines of dialogue have been cited, quoted, and repurposed for decades, the main problem with this is Bergman, both in role and to some extent in performance, and the whole romance lost and found again that's so central to the film, which simply doesn't work or resonate very far. Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's tough because, you know, there, there was that drag you out of your house, set fire to your house, kill your animals and your wife children, burn you at the stake and said, you don't like Casablanca? <laughs> 
exactly. And 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 there are people who like that. They're like, oh like, yeah. Well, there are geeks that will do that. They will get together. They will like knock on your door. Like you start seeing ropes come out with the fire escape. There was a cult of. Like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. It's, it can happen. But I'm going to go on a limb and say Ingrid Bergman has always been a boring actress. What is up with you guys? There is not – I'm not going to say she's bad. She's okay. I, I, I've seen quite a few Ingrid Bergman films in my life. I, I just don't think she's great. Fuck, I thought the girl that was in Innocent Blood and Paralod yes. was a much better actress than Ingrid Bergman. I'll agree. I'll agree with that. And Anne has done some phenomenal pictures. La Femme Nikita. Yes. Hello. Everybody forgot about that? I didn't. Ingrid Bergman was just like born. She was, and she's she terrible was, here. She was appealing to a certain age group, maybe. She always seemed to be too old for everything she was in. There was that. Even Notorious, which, which you know, Carrie Grant, you know, it'd be interesting to do a Carrie Grant show one day. But she seemed to be too old for a lot of roles, but she wasn't. You know, she was a the proper age, uh, but she just, like Humphrey, was older looking than he actually was. But she never exuded anything of, you know, sex appeal or whatever. You know, she was Swedish, so you would think right away it's a get-go, you know. But no, it wasn't. Interesting movie. It's like, it's sort of like, it's hard to criticize this film or critique. as a better word, critique this film. Because the, the fans are legion. You know, it's like, it's just like, and hardcore. That's kind of why I framed it almost apologetically, as opposed to just coming yeah, out. It's after hardcore. It. It's like it's like saying if we spent two hours talking about Argento Suspiria and the Suspiria about the other guy, we don't remember his fucking name, the director. <laughs> that you know, and there are people like I like this one. It's three and a half hours of boredom and blood gushing, relentless energy and dance. Oh uh, no, I like the other one. So it, it's, you know, there's a lot of people like that, too. Anyway, uh, not the bloodletting, you know, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's got a good cast. It's just not, it's tough because in the 60s, in the 70s, a fucking airplane does it, too. The uh, Zuckerman film. Everybody cites this movie. Everybody has to do a little airplane moment. You know, uh, Airplay has to do a Casablanca moment. So many movies do a Casablanca moment. Almost to the point where you feel like, yeah, okay. It's 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 like 2001, which is not a masterpiece. It's a very, very, very good Kubrick film, or a very good film made by Stanley Kubrick, which to this day still gets referenced in movies. 2001 is a weird head film. I never got it. I'm sorry. But but, but the, the alliteration I'm trying to make, though, is that to now, they are still making these connections. You will always see Casablanca connections, like you will always see 2001 connections. I just thought that Casablanca was possibly overrated. Yeah, that's what exactly what I'm trying to say. It's not a bad film. You will be gripped by it to some extent. It's a fast-moving, whatever it is, hour and 20 minutes. There's a lot of noir-esque sequences, good lighting, good cast, except for Bergman. But, you know, it's just, it doesn't work as a romance. There's no way. It doesn't even try to work as a romance. And in terms of a comment on American isolationism, yes, it's there. It's pointed, but it's not as good as other films he would do. And it's really, considering how highly rated it is, and the cult it's had for decades, and the fact that, oh, it's an Oscar winner, and it's the greatest film of all time. No, it is not the greatest film of all time. It doesn't even rate on the list of the greatest films of all time. I'm sorry. It's good. It's a strong film, but it's really overrated. But, but, but yeah, but it does rate on the highest 
for, for a lot of people, for a lot of organizations, and, well, we can't argue with that. Have and have not. It's a Howard Hawks, who's really a great director in a lot of things. He's Scarface, the original one with Paul Mooney. 20th Century with Lombard and... Uh, the Thing. Yeah, his Girl Friday. Ball of Fire. The Thing. Howard Hawks delivers an interesting and flawed warm-up to the second and, I would say, superior of his Bogart Bacall pairings. Go ahead. Slap me. Bogey's a charter boat captain with a grizzled old drunk for a sailing pal. Which really isn't a surprise. You kind of expect a rummy on a ship run by Captain Morgan. No shit. After their latest yuppie client tries to rip them off, the plan is foiled by a slink young Lauren McCall, a tramp con artist and pickpocket who happens to boost that very guy. Unfortunately, the plan to have him sign over the amount owed in traveler's checks before he skips town goes awry when the local Vichy authorities raid the bar and confiscate all the, quote, evidence for themselves. Stuck without funds and without a passport now, he gives in to some persistent French resistance types to smuggle them out of this hot zone, but things go very wrong. McCall, who Bogart used half his profits to buy a plane ticket home, Decided to stay because she's in too deep with him. His passenger gets shot. The cops recognize his boat and they have his drunken pal in custody. And the son of a bitch spilled the beans for booze. His back to the wall, Bogey finally makes a stand. Amusingly enough, the film was born out of a bet between Hemingway and Hawks to make a hit film out of the worst of Papa Hemingway's books. And he certainly did that. Who was the girl, the one who left you with such a high opinion of women? She must have been quite a gal. This is the first time Bogart worked with Bacall, and we all know what this resulted in off-screen. On-screen, that heat simmers like metal on a summer day. There's so much innuendo and pointed body language. If you haven't seen it, it might actually come as a surprise to you just how hot it gets. This is where the famous line about how to whistle came from, and she's all over him like flies on shit. You can see it. And he's very open about his appreciation of her charms. Check out the mental <laughs> undressing he gives her in the very first scene. He looks her up and down like he's eating her alive. Like a lot of Bogart's films, it follows a pattern that harkens back to prior films he'd done, and which would be more or less regurgitated in later films, in this case, Casablanca and Key Largo. Like those films, it's a metaphor for American isolationism in World War II, and how the sheer evil of the Axis totalitarianism, specifically fascism, but it could be just as well applied to Russia and their commie pals around the globe after the close of the war, can't help but force even the most reluctant decent man to take a stand despite the cost. That said, it's far more akin to Curtis's film than Houston's in that Bogart's helping a resistance leader and his wife against French Axis sympathizers, but none of the three films are clones, and the Casablanca angle is almost a side story to the whole thing between Bogart and Bacall, or even Bogey and his drunken pal. It's a good film overall. I certainly prefer the Bogey-Bacall lust fest to stodgy Ingrid Bergman and her code-appropriate chaste romance that can't happen, but whatever the problems behind the scenes, and there was indeed some nonsense going on between Hawks and our two leads, this isn't the assured hand of Curtis. The visuals are comparatively drab. The atmosphere is a lot less absorbing. It's only the scenes with Bacall that really pop. The rest of the film is kind of work a day. So it's mixed, but it's definitely got its hot moments. Well, Howard Hawks is, is known for a guy who who directs his actors in almost realistic dialogue. People talk over one another like they do in real life. It's just been said and reset over so many times. Or euphemisms just pop out. You know, it's just like, the di- dialogue in Alfred, Howard Hawks' film is very naturalistic, so there's that. But yes, movie's a little bit more restrained. But <laughs> we keep saying, but, but this is the Bogart meeting with Lauren Bacall, and it's something happened here. And I have a problem with the movie. It's very, it's very, it's very reduced in scenes. It's very actually the setups are very TV-ish. Uh, it's it's almost like you know non-feature film. It's, it's it's very like we have very a lot of medium shots is what I'm saying, folks. For those uh, familiar with cinematography, 
a lot of medium shots, uh, a lot of actors cramped. In some cases, we have like five or six, seven, eight actors cramped into like one scene. So we're not, you know, and dialogue's being thrown out there. And we're not, you know, it's hard to be invested. But <laughs> that being said, this is like a classic for many people. So don't listen to us, right? It's a good film. I don't think it's a great film personally, but that's that. Yeah, it's it's just a Casablanca. It's got some serious merits, but yeah, it's not as top notch as you would think it is from the, the hype. Once again, don't believe the hype. So 1945, he does a film called Conflict. Bogart does his first full-on noir, where he's married to a real uptight shrew, horror regular Rose Hobart from films like Isle of the Dead, The Cat Creeps, Mad Ghoul, and Soul of a Monster. She's determined to keep up appearances despite his obvious boner over her younger sister. Did you say Pretty obvious boner? Alexis Smith, obvious? but a close like, call like... car crash. Well, I don't know because oh, you okay. see it, but right. I mean, you can tell. It's got a skin. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should take a look at this again. <laughs> well, if you're so inclined to see if he's got a boner, I hey. But <laughs> but anyway, the close call car crash gives him some funny ideas about this. So he fakes, of all things, perennial decadent disease, neurasthenia pretending he can't walk despite being fully healed, sending his wife off into the mountains where he mysteriously appears then to strangle her and push a car off the cliff. But his open field isn't exactly a mutual attraction. Hey, just like that stupid Ira Lupino movie we talked. And he starts finding bits and bobs that suggest that wifey may still be alive. Sidney Greenstreet is a good guy for a change, a role he won up for radio as Nero Wolf. I recommend that one if everybody's ever into old-time radio. But it's not as tense or well done as most noir of worth. It's okay. It's just a bit predictable and hackneyed, and Bogey seems an ill-fit for a noir anti-hero here. He'd do much better in a sort of role later. I haven't seen this, but I'm, I'm interested in, like, the, like, showing days and... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I I, 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 I I might have seen this film years ago when I was younger, but I have no recollection, and I didn't receive it. We see it for the show. So uh, next one I want to tackle is The Big Sleep. It's actually one of my favorites of his. It's a Howard Hawks. I don't care what anyone says. I always considered The Big Sleep a far superior film to The Maltese Falcon. So take that. A lot more sex, much nicer sex, not one but two stunning femme fatales, and a far less one-note performance from our leading man. Plus, it's Howard Hawks, the man behind classics like Scarface, 20th Century, His Girl Friday, Ball of Fire, The Thing, rather than an occasional hit and frequent misman like John Huston would prove to be. The film more or less opens on a loving look at sexy redhead Martha Vickers' gams and subsequent shameless hair-twirling flirtation with our hero, proceeds the older sister Lauren Bacall doing an only slightly more refined version of the same, and then leaves the unexpectedly hot-to-trot bookstore manager, Dorothy Malone, Alone, using a door shade like a striptease act, doffing her glasses, letting down her hair, and closing up shop mid-afternoon for a boozy fling. Holy shit, everything missing from the much-faded and admittedly still quite excellent in his own right, Maltese Falcon, is made up for and delivered double strength here. A far more assured hand at the helm, gorgeous women that exude more raw sexual charge than you'd likely see in a film in 2019, much less if it's cold bedeviled era. It's more of a detective-style mystery than noir fall guy Sam Spade could ever manage, and the snappy dialogue that Hawks was known for leave this one in obvious improvement, even carrying over twitchy Elisha Cook Jr. for a bit part. The plot is convoluted and confusing as all get out, with so many characters dropping dead and blackmailing each other for one thing or another, but there's so much sex going down here, you don't have to read very hard between the lines to get what's going down every time the screen goes black or the scene changes. Even throwaway scenes with uncredited lady cab driver Joy Barlow, also of the Have and Have Not, and smoking hot hat check girl Lorraine Miller of The White Gorilla are loaded. I mean, Bogey's getting more action here than he knows what to do with, and every one of them's a fucking knockout. This is in the 40s, people. Bogart comes off as much tougher, 
far more savvy and honestly a lot more in control of the situation despite all the noir twists and turns that much as with the Jala leave everybody implicated with consuming perversions and bizarre quirks of personality that leave everyone marked with the stain of sin everyone's guilty on some level or another nobody gets off unscathed there's blackmail sleeping around pornographic photos if not film drugs insanity if you're playing close enough attention this is hardly the postcard picture of Norman Rockwell America some quarters would pretend we ever were or ascribed to in short it's an adult film where Maltese Falcon was a children's condensed version all scrubbed neat and clean and delivered in only the broadest of strokes the good guy the bad guy the good girl gone bad and the guy who loves her but not to skirt the rules of order and justice that's simplifying matters slightly but not by much compare that bit of simplistic juvenilia with this film the differences are jarring shades of gray predominate. If we're being honest here, it's more like everyone's leading pretty far into the darker tones thereof, and it's not scary dark like a mob film or something. This is a world you very much want to be a part of, one that's so erotically charged and popular with ladies both worthy and willing that even the stiffest of would-be saints would be a fool to resist diving in. So the plot's a bit complicated. Who cares? There are actually two versions of this film, the one we all know for years now, which among other things, pictures a whole lot more of sexy younger girl Vickers, and one that varies by a good 20 minutes worth of added dialogue and includes some charged repertoire between a wet lip smoky Bacall and Bogart, as well as a few altered bit part cast members. Beyond removing a few scenes, though, the second version really boils down to one exposition sequence between Bogey and the cops, which is kind of pointless, and two new scenes to give more repertoire between Bogart and Bacall, both of which are nice, one in her bedroom when he's bringing a stone sister home, and another where they have this horse-racing metaphor for sex, but you lose too much of what makes the other version we're used to work. There's less vickers, scenes seem reordered, the plot moves along from spot to spot faster, or seems to on viewing them back to back you're honestly better off sticking with the more disjointed version that doesn't have those scenes and which leaves another better ones. There's plenty of sex and atmosphere as it stands, and its very disordered nature suits it better, leaving the viewers feeling sort of off-kilter and more unsure as to everyone's motivations and relations throughout. This is really, really a good film. You might want to see both versions, but don't worry about the one where they fixed it up. Go for the one that they released. It's much, much better. Well, on a te- technical level, you know, Howard Hawks, who's still like four years away from the thing I name-checked up before, who works on the screenplay lay bracket who's that lay bracket wrote one of the screenplay uh, adaptations for empire strikes back that's how long this person is working max steiner long time great composer worked on this christian nyby who who's credited with working behind the scenes co-directing with howard hawks the epic the thing is the editor here a lot of interesting things going on. I'm mean, just on a technical level. Dorothy Malone, Bob's Elijah Cook, you mentioned already. You know, just so many people in this picture. But it's not heavy-handed with, as much with the male characters as the other Bogart pictures, because this is their thing. Because this is their thing. This is like a one-two production. What do I find unusual about this? Bogart was evidently appears older or of his age. And Bacall, who is her age, what was she like? She I was know. probably like 20 or 21 at that point. She was young. 20, so he's like, what, 40, 44, maybe? So he's somewhere like double her age, easy. But, but yeah, but he, he's looking older than that. Yeah. And so, and it's like really interesting how this suddenly spilled over to real life. They've already worked together. They're already kind of like got a thing going on and by this movie it's sort of like it's cemented this is so much more the noir film that the maltese falcon should have been and a lot of people speak of it, speak of as being this is the one really good movie I, I i like it so much more than casablanca to have to have not another 
films of its ilk. And in comparison, in comparison, Robert Mitchum in the 70s had done Farewell, My Lovely. Which is great. Which is really good. We and talked about that, that in our Charlotte Rampling show, didn't we? Yes, yes. And possibly you mentioned an Oliver Reed show. And then a few years later, he did The Big Sleep. But oh, that for was some reason, a mess. <laughs> Right, and for some reason, because the, the, the Farewell My Lovely would mention was... Uh, successful. Yeah, it was successful, but it was also supposed to take place in the 40s. So the big sleep takes place in the 70s. Doesn't it have Lindsay Drew, the British porn star? <laughs> I don't remember. Oliver Reed was in that, and, and, and Leslie and Down on the Puncher. I don't know. Porn was definitely involved. And... Uh, <laughs> The storyline, at least. It was yeah, a mess, yeah. And, and, but Mitchell looked more like he was paying attention. But, yo, this is like, it's a thing. You know, you can't replicate this kind of theme, this kind of cinema. You know, and it would take them 30 plus years to do it. And they were partly su- successful. I will say that. It's, 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 it's probably one of Bogart's best roles, one of his best films. Mm-hmm. That said. So next up, he does Dead Reckoning for John Cromwell, who is basically known for directing Little Lord Fauntleroy of all things. Strong film noir with Bogart as a World War II vet whose buddy's about to be given a medal, which disturbs the hell out of the guy and results in his disappearance. Bogart goes in pursuit, only to find he burned to death in a car crash, and that there's a whole history to his pal that he was keeping under wraps. Noir regular Elizabeth Scott, Pitfall, Strange Love of Martha Ivers, Stolen Face, she's in this one. Probably her most famous role, and she's a tricky one. Sometimes she comes off kind of sexy, sort of a more butch take on Lauren Bacall, just as a bottle blonde. Other times, she's just a bit too butch. I mean, I can imagine drag queens could have a field day doing her in shows. You get the general idea here. I never really decided what I think about her. It changes by the frame. Even watching this movie, I was like, do I like her? Well, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. So either way, he was already pretty well established as a double act with Bacall. So why cast a near double like this? Were they short on budget? Either way, it works quite well, and it's a good example of noir for those unfamiliar with the genre, with all twists and turns, put upon flawed hero, at least by proxy since he's following the tracks of his dead pal, and a sultry femme fatale leading him out to destruction, or the niche and edge of the abyss thereof. But yeah, it kind of hinges on how you feel about Elizabeth Scott. I, I don't remember this movie. I didn't watch it for the show. I remember Elizabeth Scott from a lot of... She worked it by Hammer. In the fifties, uh, yeah, one of those before. noirs they did. Yeah, yeah, she did more than one actually, and and she was really interesting, sultry. She had a very distinct accent, and I can never place it when she did those pictures. So I can't speak of this movie. I don't remember it. I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> you liked it, yeah. But there, there's only so many films you can watch, people. But uh, I like Elizabeth Scott. She's got something going on in a very particular way. So, same year, he actually does something that I'm sure you never heard of, but which you really should. The Two Mrs. Carols by a fellow named Peter Godfrey. It's actually a British film. One of the few post-Maltese Falcon films that stars Bogey as a baddie. This one's a noir with a strong Hitchcock feel, specifically evocative of the Cary Grant vehicle, Suspicion. Bogey's a famous painter on vacation in Scotland, having an affair with Barbara Stanwyck, who's in things like Bull of Fire, Mad Miss Manton, Lady Burlesque, Double Indemnity, even the file on Thelma Jordan. Things are getting heavy when he lets it slip that he's already married with a kid, but when she mysteriously passes on within a year or so, Stanwyck and Bogey tie the knot. Unfortunately, he winds up getting a commission to do a portrait of rich bitch Alexis Smith. And of course, he's back at it, and it turns out that not only does he have a habit of bumping off wives to move on to new ones, but that he's got an incriminating tick of painting each victim as an angel of death before they pass. And guess who's the latest? Lovable Nigel Bruce, Dr. Watson, and all those Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes films and radio shows, Holly and She, and actually yeah, bit parts in uh, Hitchcock's Rebecca and the aforementioned Suspicion, is the drunken local doctor who doesn't have a clue as to what's going on, 
but it's really all about Stanwyck, who's such a good catch, you'd be baffled as to why the hell Bogart's offing her for this other cold and worthless bitch. It gets pretty dark, there's some nice windy and rain-swept locales meant to evoke a Northern England feel in fall, and plenty of noir-appropriate chiaroscuro use of shadows and framing through bar windows, bar-evocative wood paneling, and banisters as visual cues, and Bogey killing off even the chemist who's supplying his murderous wares, so it's a bit of a surprise this one really has no cash in among cineasts. It's definitely a forgotten gem. It's pulling the same ostensible faux pas of casting as conflict, but he's a much better fit here, and while both are quite watchable, especially for noir fans. This film's a whole hell of a lot more successful than that one was. In fact, this was my favorite of all the films that I didn't already have in the collection of the new ones I discovered. So it really is good. I definitely recommend it to Mrs. Carroll's. Did you see this one at all? Yeah, I did. Where did you get your copy? Actually, through the library. It was on DVD. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's. I, I have to agree with you. It's one, of the, it's one of these movies nobody ever talks about. Or it's forgotten in light of the other Bogart films that you know, much more popular, much more discussed, blah, blah, blah. The two Mrs. Carols is really good, and I agree with everything you said. It's very weird. You know, he's gone from becoming a thug, a gangster, to a leading man, to a romantic lead, to suddenly they throw him in this thing. It's a British film, which is unusual. I have an issue with Barbara Stanwyck, you know, but it's a personal issue. (laughs) I just never felt her like, you know, I don't know. She's got a biting edge to her. She's not over Yeah, well, we found, out, we found out years later, like, she's not, you know, like, <laughs> she was gay and everybody knew it but us. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, but it was, it was fine, you know, but it's, you know, but there's a lot of gay actresses that did, that gave off this, the, you know, they were acting, they gave off the sexuality a really good way. Gay actors too, Rock Hudson, you know, but the, the list is endless. But, you know, with her, I always had a personal problem, like, yeah, I'm not buying this. <laughs> like, the Big Valley, you know, her kids were like, you know, uh, Lee Majors and that, that TV Western thing series. You know, like, and she would be the matriarch of the family. I'm like, yeah, well, how she have kids? <laughs> <laughs> she but, was uh, a good screwball comedy heroine, and she worked well in noirs, and that was good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, personally, I didn't like her. I didn't think she worked for me, but it's a good film. It's a good film. So uh, next up, he does Dark Passage for a fellow named Delmer Daves, who nobody ever heard of. While certainly the least of the Bogart Bacall pairings, that's a pretty high watermark to judge by. In fact, this one's got a bit of a bum rap over the years, and even I remember it as much lesser and more gimmicky than it actually proved to be. Bogart's the guy who's just escaped jail. He's been sent there falsely accused of killing his wife, and for the first 20 minutes or so, it's all just shot first person, so people talk to the camera, and you might see his feet or an arm reaching out. But it's pretty well done, and while this is hardly a work of art, you can see as much akin to Hitchcock's experiments in tracking and using long edits without a cut in films like Rope and Young and Innocent. It works much better than remembered, and for a gimmick, the way it's filmed is actually reasonably naturalistic, all things considered. What seems really odd isn't that, but the fact that when he gets out, after he decks the first guy who gives him a lift playing 20 questions and figuring out who he picked up from a radio announcement, he seems to keep running into folks who are sympathetic to his cause, realize he's been framed. First, McCall, whose father was also perjured and sent to death under false pretenses, and then a cabbie who recognizes him, but it's nice enough to hook him up with a plastic surgeon to get the heat off. And then he doesn't even give the guy credit in the dialogue a few minutes later, claiming he only has two friends, the pal visits and McCall. Talk about ungrateful. Anyway, talk about convenient plot points. The scary old bitch who testified against him, which is actually because he wouldn't fuck her, so she lied and accused him in court, shows up. She's apparently a friend of Bacall's. 
Anyway, more evidence comes out against him, and eventually he figures out the obituary even further. She planted a whole bunch of evidence against him because she's the killer of both his wife and his pal he visited once he got out of jail. And when he confronts her, she taunts him that she'll never confess, and he's screwed, then probably falls out a window and dies. Does this sound me too enough yet, or aren't you listening? Thankfully, there's a sort of happy ending in the pre-social security slash computerized tracking days where he runs off to South America and Bacall meets up with him at the end, and they boogie into the end credits. Believe it or not, the baddie busy slash psycho in this one we're talking about is Endora from Bewitched Agnes Moorhead and she looks 15 years older here than she did on that show a good 20 years <laughs> later go figure it's actually a pretty decent film noir if admittedly with some issues as aforementioned <laughs> Oh, no, it's it's a pretty decent film. It's got that lady in the lake thing going on, Robert Montgomery, for a while. And it's, you know, it's pairing them up again. Uh, Denver Daves had done some decent films. I, I actually like a number of his pictures. Uh, the thing that doesn't pop is the supporting cast. It's like, okay, Agnes Moorhead, who has done some really good stuff, and Bruce Bennett, I've recognized from other things, but they just put them in this picture, which usually Bogart and Bacolo are surrounded by character actors or A-list actors who make their movies pop. You know, like, they're in it, but, you know, you just know they're, they're superlative dressing. But it's, it didn't happen here, and it's, it's, it's probably because they want you to put all your attention on these two guys. So next up, he does The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Another John Houston, another hard luck story for Bogey. He's a bum who gets a day laborer type job as an oil rigger, but the guy who hired him skips out without paying. Why do we need this bit of exposition? Well, we don't really, although they later beat the crap out of him and take his money, which they promptly throw away in the oldest get-rich-quick scheme known to man. So back in a flophouse, they encounter the Submariner. Oh, wait, if it was written by Stan Lee, it'd be a better movie. What they actually find is another old drunk of a prospector who delivers the usual fish story about there being gold in them, their hills, and they're dumb enough to buy it, wasting all that hard-earned money to beat out of their slippery day job boss to head out west to follow the old coot's pipe dream. Of course, being fantasy film logic, they actually find gold and hit it rich, but then all the parasites want in. A Mexican bandito, the local yokel. Bogey starts getting more paranoid and nutty than a pothead watching Fox News. People start getting hurt. Crazy Bogart gets killed, and in a fit of peak, the others throw away all their hard-won treasure without realizing it. There's a sardonic, quote-unquote, happy ending, where the leads minus Bogey all go their separate ways, supposedly wiser for the experience, but still the same dead-end bums they were in the first place. Yay? One of those goofy message films that comes across like an episode of the Flintstones. Oh, what trouble with Fred's latest great rich quick scheme causes everyone trouble this week? And given a code restriction on any intimations of sexuality or violence, Bogart was supposed to wind up decapitated, or even cursing, Houston's script was boulderized, it's surprisingly weak tea, like a lot of those, quote, greatest Oscar-nominated films Ivory Tower critics with the heads up their own asses used to pontificate about endlessly. And I'm sure there are still some who buy into all that and do the same. But to modernize with so much corruption and hard luck in the real world, these just come off as Darwin Award worthy. Like, are you morons really that stupid? What do you think was going to happen, idiot? I guess if you're looking for a western that's sort of a noir with scenes that may remind you of Touch of Evil or Easy Rider without ever being as good as either of those films, it may seem okay, but it's dated, overlong by far, kind of tired, and hardly the sort of masterwork that certain quarters would have it. I actually didn't like it. It's funny. Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of this either even when I first watched it many, many, many years ago. And I watched it again recently because uh, I always like to give things revisits. One best director for John Huston, one best supporting actor for his dad, Walter Huston, one best adapted screenplay for John, Golden Globes, best picture, best director, nothing for Humphrey yet. Kubrick calls it his fourth favorite film of all time, but he would. <laughs> Sam Raimi calls it his favorite film of all time. 
Paul Thomas Anderson watched this the night before he he wrote and directed. He started shooting his epic, boring film, There Will Be Blood. So here's the thing. Interesting cast. Mainly, the supporting cast is mainly people who did a lot of westerns. So, you know, you got that gritty John Houston thing going on. Humphrey looks suitably wary. And so what is happening here, though, is that I don't like films where you're spending a running time. In this case, for this time period, 1948, over two hours, spending a lot of time with your lead, only for your lead to die. And then everyone kind of like gets together and go like, okay. And you're, you're, you're one of these almost, and that's why I'm surprised you may not have liked it as much as you said you did. Almost a 70s ending. Yeah, where just everybody's like, okay, that guy's dead. Let's just, everything didn't work out the way you want. Let's just move on and go on our own way. It's a very nihilistic film, which is part of John Huston's grand bag of toys. He likes working with that shit. Unusual for its time period, I'll give it that. Bargot is really good. He should have been more recognized than he was. But that being said, it's not the great film people say it is. I'm sorry, yeah. it's me. It's I agree. Just... So next up, he does what actually is a great film, Key Largo, which is John Huston. Finally, the John Huston Bogart connection scores an unabashed bullseye. It took the guy long enough. After three career peak films from Bogey and Bacall, two from Howard Hawks, and one from Delmer Davies, this final picture shakes down as very likely the best, not only for the two of them, but for the spotty John Huston run of Bogart films. Bogart's an ex-military who goes to visit the hotelier father and widow of a war casualty and buddy. The father, a turn-of-the-century stage and silent film legend Lionel Barrymore, is a likable old sort confined to a wheelchair but beloved by the local Indian tribe, and his daughter, a decidedly unglamorous Lauren Bacall who almost looks plain here, and wow, check out those ginormous feet. Talk about Emma Peel. After regaling them with war stories and getting shown around, he encounters some of the hotel guests, a genial of crass fat mob type, and his edgier zoot suit wearing pals. Even so, all seems well enough until the sheriff shows up looking for his missing deputy and thinks it's a pair of Indians that did the killing. All of a sudden, the gangsters starting in the edgy, their boss, Edward G. Robinson, at his oiliest, who's actually the guy holding up and torturing the deputy downstairs, and a hurricane hits, trapping everyone inside. Tensions flare, Robinson starts throwing his weight around, he makes some sleazy suggestions to Bacall, he mocks and goads Barrymore in attempting to fight him, demeans his drunken maul and former torch singer, and does his level best to unman Bogart, who's smart enough to take it and bide his time. Eventually, people start to figure out just how tough Bogart is and what he's up to, and with a little assistance from the maul and his own quick wits, he takes down the baddies one by one, heading back to Bacall and Barrymore for a new life and happy ending. Wow. The over-the-top fight for your life, and depending on mood, the equally crazy house at the edge of the park, and hitchhike aside, I really hate home invasion films. They're just nasty, and the running time always feels three times as long as it actually is. But this film, it's some amazing stuff. I mean, yes, it's at least the third open allegory about U.S. isolation during World War II, and how if we don't stand and fight, there'll be no one left to stand against a blatant evil. And even those who have tried proven ineffectual and are losing ground fast. But unlike Casablanca or The Have and Have Not, this one's more subtle in tone. While he's a war veteran visiting a war widow and her father, there's no mention of politics or global affairs here. You can take it as a straight-up crime film about an old-time prohibition-era mobster a la Capone, and bearded about being exiled from his country is undesirable and living a fantasy of nostalgia for the good old days, which is exactly what Barrymore, Bogart, and Bacall are doing, as is Robinson's Mall, though they're all pining for some very different pasts. And while things get pretty brutal on a certain level, there's no mistake about how rotten these guys are or how they get their sadistic kicks out of making others grovel, abased, and dead, it's a 40s movie, so it never goes to Grindhouse or modern-day levels. There's a hell of a lot 
lot of claustrophobic atmosphere, particularly during the whole hurricane siege middle eight of the film. It's got a message that still resonates about the importance of taking a stand and standing up against evil. There's some top-notch acting from everyone. You've never seen Robinson this intense and dangerously changeable. And there's no question, it's the best damn thing John Huston ever put his name to. No competition whatsoever. Oh, that was very good. That, that was like, I would put that out and like, Put it on like next time they like put out a Blu-ray and just do the liner notes, man. That was good. <laughs> no, it really was. It was well done, well said. Much better put than a lot of liner notes I see nowadays. I, I don't want to name names, but really, well, yeah. I mean, you have a certain appreciation for this, and you you nailed it. Actually, Richard Brooks, who went on to become a director of odd movies, also did the script work on the screenplay with John Huston, which I find interesting. Yeah. Edward G. Robinson comes across a little different in this film. A little bit less weird. <laughs> a little more dangerous, yeah. And then you start buying. This This is late in life for him. For a lot of people, Lionel Barrymore, another stage guy who moved over into films, certainly is really good in this. Mark Lawrence, uh, like a bit part guy who we remember from a lot of films. I heard that cap turning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people in this are really interesting. Although I found it partly to be like some of his earlier films a bit stage bound but it's based on a Broadway play but it didn't run tremendous it only ran for 105 performances which is not a lot for for a year and a half so there's that being said but it's 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 really good you know Humphrey's top of his game John Huston really nailed it you know I think you know a lot of people we were just talking about we were just discussing uh Treasure of Sierra Madre and this is so much a better film and it's but this also is like an unusual turning point where there are less high points, but then the few that come, I'll knock it out of the park. Yeah, I will say that. This is where he goes and starts making his own film company. Uh, Bogart was always kind of outspoken about his problems he had behind the scenes with all his directors and such. Everybody else would kind of like, kind of like they do on DVDs and Blu-rays now where they kiss each other's ass. It's like the jolly glad hand jerk each other off club. Right. And he was honest, kind of like, you know, you go over Third Eye or you listen to us and we'll tell it to you straight. You know, this is how we feel. This is what we're seeing. I don't give a shit. You know, I'm like a kiss under his ass. So he decided, finally, you know what? Logical thing here. Let me make my own damn film company. I'll produce my own stuff. And unfortunately, it didn't result in that much that was really worthwhile. So 1950, he does In a Lonely Place. Nicholas Ray, actually who did Rebel Without a Cause and a few noir like The Cow with Robert Mitchum and On Dangerous Ground with Diana Lupino directs this one. It's a grim melodrama where Bogey's a down-on-his-luck screenwriter long past his marquee days. He's also a two-fisted drinker with a violent temper. When some sleazy hipster type rubs it into a similarly washed-up drinking buddy, he starts swinging. He starts a relationship with a young fangirl, Gloria Graham of Crossfire, Macau, the Todd Killings, and the Nesting, believe it or not, all the way to the 80s, whose attentions in hero worship bolster his flagging creativity, and he starts getting back on his feet. Unfortunately, he also winds up prime suspect in a murder, which results in increasing suspicion from Graham and others in the cast, while he reacts poorly and makes things worse. Even when the villain of the piece is exposed, his misanthropy and explosiveness and her new distrust of him ruin their affair. Is it a noir? Well, sort of, sort of not. It's more of a depressing character study of an angry outsider lashing out at the world and stabbing himself in the back in the process, kind of like the early Elvis films where they're all dark and he's a JD that ruins the lives of everyone in his orbit. I used to identify with this angry young man business, Back, well, in this case, more angry, wash-up, old drunk, but even so. These days, I'm a lot more subdued and tired of all the fighting. The world's only gotten worse, but in other ways, my life's gotten better, or at least there's something of a trade-off. So these sort of films, these kind of hard-luck characters, they don't resonate the same way they did when I was a leather-clad GD in my late teens and early 20s. User experience here may vary. It's well-acted and scripted, sure, but I remember this one a lot more fondly than it actually held up to be when I just rewatched it for the show. 
I totally agree with you. I used to like this a lot more when when I also was an angry young man, as Billy Joel would say. Uh, Nicholas Ray's a wacky film director. Uh, he's, I, I say wacky because he's made some phenomenal films with some <sighs> some uh, firecracker cast members. Uh, I, you know, we're just not even going to go into this stuff. Gloria Graham is a very interesting actress. Yes, this is like one of those early Santana productions, that, you know, Humphrey Bogart's production company. So right off the bat, you're going to cast yourself as a possibly schizophrenic, down on your luck, Hollywood screenwriter, hasn't had a hit for like X amount of years, who was suspected of murder. I mean, why would you do that? You were at the top of your game, you know? And, and then, but the thing I found interesting is like the, the, the supporting cast members are... You know, we had Peter Laurie, we had Sidney Green Street, we had, you know, Ad Infinitum for for Bogey's other movies. He cast kind of people who were, I, I'm sure he was involved in this process, who were drab, who, who were not pop out at you. And so, like, you know, Frank Lovejoy, who uh, who's supposed to play our detective sergeant, is the kind of guy who was like, okay, is this a character actor, but... You know, he sort of looked like a knucklehead. You know, he's just like, he looked mean. You know, you don't want your cops to look mean. You know, the right way you're suspecting them of something else. Not a favorite film of mine, but, but I understand why he did it in a way. Yeah. So next up, 1951, he does The Enforcer. It's a fellow named Bretain Windust. Don't ask me. No-budget C-list programmer that shows exactly where Bogart's career could have gone had he lived through the 50s. This is a dragnet slash Elliot Ness untouchable sort of affair, where Bogey's the gruff two-fisted DA trying to nail a big-time mobster and break his murder ink racket. What the problem is, beyond the utter lack of budget and decidedly monogram slash PRC feel, is that it's unfairly tenuous ground for more modern viewers because there's a big thing made out of the use of the words contract and hit, and how the cops have no idea what these words mean. The mobsters use these clever new code words to throw them off the trail and keep them from realizing that, yes, you can actually run an organization just providing hitmen to those willing to pay. What a shocker. Apparently, Roe Walsh did some fix-up work on this film, which is probably why you do get a few scenes that work better than the rest, which is so impoverished. It comes around to a positive by being super claustrophobic and filled with dark, shadowy lighting. In fact, it's almost noir, but as noted in the intro, it's not, being more of a police-slash-judicial procedural and investigation. It's also very low-rent, and that's mostly populated by old men, something that happened later in the war years. You see it a lot in Charlie Chan films and serials, when all the younger, healthier men had re-enlisted or enlisted in the first place, and were presumably seeing action overseas, even in Hollywood. So, there's a few very scary washwoman types in this. I mean, come on, Zero Mostel is one of the baddies, if you can believe that. So, it says a lot. Uh, my take is another Santana production, uh, and Bogey's last for Warner Brothers, for his contract. Uh, Bretain Windows, what a name. You would think it's a pseudonym, but it's not, apparently. Was a, a Broadway director who actually fell ill during the shooting of the film, so that's why they brought Raoul Walsh in to finish it, and Bogey already worked with him. What's more interesting is that the list of supporting actors in this thing are just, I mean, really... Wow. I mean, I say wow as, like, these are people you would not suspect to appear in a film after the cusp of the 1950s as Bogey's starting to do some more hard-edged films. And, all right, so Zero Mostel already well-acclaimed as a Broadway presence, and I'm not taking that away from him. But we have cowboy stars in hard-hitting – we got Roy Roberts here as, as police captain. We have Bob Steele, another cowboy star. You know, we just we're just peppering this film with 
It's sort of like uh, if we had, I don't know, the John Wick films with people from the Partridge family. I mean, I just, it's weird. It's, it's just like really odd casting. I think it was two bogeys. You know, he wanted to do something different. King Donovan, we know of. It's just odd casting. It, the movie doesn't really work. I mean, some of the better portions of it, I agree with you, probably due to Raul Walsh. There's a lot of real-life stuff going on with the mob around this time period. I think that was the, the key point to them wanting to do this movie. And it's also stuff that Bogey, Bogey, Bogart was interested in at this time period. So uh, not a great film, but I think one people should take a look at. So that next up, because I wasn't able to see Sirocco, The African Queen, which is a John Huston film. Whew, talk about overrated. She talks at you as though you were a microphone. She lectured the hell out of me on temperance and the evils of drink. She doesn't give a damn how she looks. I don't think she tries to be a character. I think she is one. The quote from Bogart on her. I hate the Hepburns. Hell, I don't even care much for Spencer Tracy. I like Boysenberry. Fuck you. And Bogey co-starred against both of them. Catherine, with her jittery voice and shaking, ah, bad case of the DT's head, was just about unbearable, even in her very best films, the otherwise entertaining screwball comedies The Philadelphia Story, which is saved mostly by Cary Grant and some said Jimmy Stewart, and Bringing Up Baby, which my wife enjoyed, but I still find kind of painful. Here she's a bitchy old prude of a school mom, sorry, missionary, with a blackboard pointer up her ass, trying to get downriver and away from the Nazis who were colonizing the natives for use in the military. Along this painful bus ride, I mean riverboat excursion, they bicker. She pulls a temperance movement on his drunken ass, and magically this oil and water means they fall in love in the most prim and prudish manner possible, even getting married by the Nazis before their planned execution. Being the most maudlin middle American schmaltz ever filmed, they get away and are married into a new hell which we're mercifully spared from seeing any of. Why was this one popular? Why does anyone like code appropriate Disneyfied, boulderized, safe crap like this, much as continue to create similar material in this day and age. Oh, and it's another John Huston, which honestly says a lot about most of his collaborations with Bogart. I said use this one as a torture device. I hate this movie. I hate Catherine Hepburn. What do you think? <laughs> Why don't you kill yourself? No, I hate. I hate. No, uh, no uh, Catherine Hepburn is funny. You, you have an interesting point. I was always wondering about her text, and I thought she might have early Parkinson's, but this is way, way earlier, so maybe she had the DTs. Who knows? <laughs> uh, for a bogey movie, this is one of the early ones. You will see a primarily British cast. Robert Morley, Peter Bull uh, are in this. Uh, Walter Gotell, later to be in a lot of the Roger Moore Bond movies. Theodore Bikel, primarily not British, but a stage guy, and he's done some interesting things. Hepburn, primarily a presence on stage who did some movies that like locked into this thing, you know, put Jimmy Stewart, Spencer Tracy. I'm not a huge fan of hers, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> this movie, however, did I don't know. It just it ignited things for a lot of people. And despite whatever we say, it's you know like one of the oh, it's one of those Oscar wins. Like it's the Casablanca, but Casablanca is a lot more watchable. But he did win. He did win his first Oscar for this movie. So, you know, congratulations, Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> uh, it also is like on the film list, like 100 movies of all time, the 100 most passionate movies of all time, the 100 most quotable movies of all time, the 100 most cheerful movies of all time, blasey, blasey, blasey. 
I don't like this kind of thing. I, I've seen it done better, cheaper elsewhere by less less trained thespians, to put it that way. It, it's it's a rope thing. It's just so many people have done this over and over and over and over. But that being said, it's there's a thing about being the first. So uh, let's put it this way. I've said this many times to people, and they always kind of laugh at it, but I'm serious. If it says Oscar winner on it, avoid it. Don't even think about it. Chances I... are, unless you're really kind of like safe in middle America and you, you want to watch something with your mother and the kids or whatever, you don't want to see this shit. Go watch a I... real movie. <laughs> I, I wouldn't agree with that. Some things have won the Oscar that I've supported. So, uh, I, so I, few. So maybe, yeah. What's next? So next up, Deadline USA, done by uh, Richard Brooks, who did The Blackboard Jungle, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, looking for Mr. Goodbar. This one's a bit of an oddity. It tries to be an apologist for a free and investigative press, which it sort of succeeds at, but it's too late in Bogart's career and doesn't bear enough of a desperate, gung-ho charge to actually work, and it's got a bad ending to boot. Bogart's the managing editor of The Day, a long-running newspaper built with the mission to expose malfeasance and report the news regardless of how influential or powerful the target or what kind of strings they pull. Unfortunately, the founder just passed on, and the kids could give two shits selling off to a USA Today-style sleazy competitor who's A, only interested in removing competition, and B, all about fluff instead of news, much less the hard-hitting investigative time. It's not enough anymore to give them just news. They want comics, contests, puzzles. They want to know how to bake a cake, win friends, influence the future, horoscopes, tips on the horses, interpretation of dreams so they can win in the numbers lottery. And if they accidentally stumble on the first page, news. The rest of the film is the staff, all who find this out via wire through the Associated Press, even Bogart doesn't know, having funereal drinking parties and black humors that try to keep things up to standard during the paper's last two weeks. Bogart tries to keep his estranged wife from remarrying and do one last big expose on a powerful racketeer's murder of his mall, both to save the paper by one-upping its circulation and to stand up to a guy who's effectively silenced all who'd expose him. In the end, they succeed in printing the story in the diary of the murdered girl despite all his death threats, but... Bogart still loses his wife, the paper still gets sold, and it's literally the last edition the paper ever prints. So, uh, yay. Ed Begley Sr. and Ethel Barrymore are in this, and you'd think from the plot that it might work, but in the end, the real bad guys win, just like what's been happening in the news media for years now, and it's even worse with our dictator-in-chief slapping down even what little balls the remaining news outlets have with the label of fake news and propaganda. In the end, it's just depressing and not triumphant, and that's not good news. Well, I think people seem to not realize that the downbeat uh, cinema of the mid to late 60s actually started about a decade earlier. And this is one of those pictures. Richard Brooks, who actually would do fine work with The Stuntman and a couple other films, really does some heavy hitting with this picture. Yeah, it's downbeat. We don't expect a career actor like Humphrey Bogart to be playing this kind of role. And, you know, the audience is... Really, when they came in and watched this movie and they left it there, they really, real, did they really realize it would be such a downer? There, there's a lot going on with this film. I think it's it's a movie that's unheralded and forgotten. Uh, I think people should see it because it, there's a lot of interesting stuff, uh, a lot of work done by Bogart in this film. It's really interesting. He also looks older, but he is older at this point. It's no His Girl Friday, let's put it that way. Yeah. So, uh, next up, last couple of films he does. Beat the Devil, another John Huston. John Huston and Bogart, they made at least two unabashed classics, being Key Largo and the Maltese Falcon. But, jeez, films like this, The African Queen, High Sierra, Dr. Clitterhouse, The Petrified Forest, they make you want to say, 
Two great tastes that shouldn't be allowed within a thousand yards of each other. It's got that no-budget early 60s feel to it, possibly because it wound up coming out through a low-rate independent British film company, Romulus Films. There's lots of bad comedy music, Robert Morley camping things up, a hundred-year-old-looking Peter Lorre, and a script that Houston admitted was written day-to-day during the shoot. Essentially, this is one big, long mess, trying to be a comedy or spoof and failing miserably. Bogey screws around on his eye-candy white Gina Lola Brigida with flighty, possibly insane Jennifer Jones, who's married to a stuffy Brit, who lands Bogart in a whole shitload of trouble with his cronies by confirming false suspicions that he's just out for the latest scam, something about uranium, for himself and cutting them out just because, you know, she's crazy. Jeez, Lola Brigida has a huge rack. Yes, that was the only part of this piece of shit that engaged me. Fuck John Houston. <laughs> It's a very strange movie. You know, now we're we're nineteen fifty three, we're 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 edging toward the mid fifties and you know, again with it Bogart's own Santana pictures, he wants to make an art film. I call it I personally I call it an art film, directed by Houston, screenplay by Houston Truman Capote, Gino Lola Bridger, you know, European hottie. Yeah. Good point you made. It was it was it was made for a production company called Romulus. Distributed by British Line and UA. So, like, it's sort of like nobody wanted to pick this picture up, which is an interesting thing. It's Bogart for all, you know, everyone knows. The, I think Humphrey Bogart was trying to get into that international market more and more. <sighs> but the movie's offbeat. We have Italian, British people here, us, you know, Scotland Yard detectives. You know, it's just a lot going on. And it doesn't coalesce into a satisfying whole. That being said, uh, it's 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 an oddity in his filmography, but it's a movie that some people like, and you know can't take that away. It's built a following over the years for some reason. So not directly next, but well, the year after is Sabrina from Billy Wilder, who did Ball of Fire, Double Indemnity, Ace in the Hole, and Buddy Buddy of all things. We talked about that one on our Kinski show. And here, Bogey stars against the daughter. You know how when Sherlock Holmes, one of the worst stories is The Scandal of Bohemia with Irene, the woman Adler? And if you listen to the old radio show with Basil Rathbone and Nadja Bruce, the sequel, The Second Generation, with her daughter was just as bad? Yeah, it's an Audrey Hepburn film, where Bogey saves her from killing herself. You know what? I like Boysenberry. What the hell is wrong with people? Why are the Hepburns still so beloved? That's all I gotta say on this one. (laughs) Odd casting, Billy Wilder... I've never been personally a big fan of R.G. Hepburn, and, and be that as it may, I, I think Bogart was miscast in the role. I know he famously did not get along with R.G. Hepburn or William Holden. This is an A-list movie, A-list cast, and it's hard to <sighs> play two aging men vying for the attention of a, of a younger-looking woman. In this case, already William Holden is looking... A particular age. Bogart is a particular age looking his age. And then you have Audrey Hepburn. I don't know what the famous thing was for her, the huge attraction. But, you know, you can't take that away. People like her. People think she was beautiful. Okay, fine. I'm not going to argue with that. People believe what they want. But these guys both looked older. And and, and I just think the whole thing was miscast. Um, 
it's the same point as White Christmas. Everybody, they actually misremember Holiday Inn, which is the good movie that had White Christmas in it with Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Mm. Yeah, it is uh, a as film. Yeah. that awful film, White Christmas, which had an old Bing Crosby with Danny Kay, who was gay, uh, playing against, you know, going after some young girls and vying for her interest. I'm like, really? This film sucks. But everybody's thinking of Holiday Inn. And it's, but it's you know, with that being said, though, The Barefoot Contessa works. And I can't figure out why. It's a Joseph L. Mankiewicz film. So Ava Gardner, who was like Sinatra squeeze, Sinatra squeeze, and by and by hearsay did everybody in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and, and Humphrey, who's looking a little bit like he's hitting the bottle more than usual, <laughs> is is like I don't know. It's a strange movie. He plays a down as luck movie director, reduced to working for abusive people in a studio. You know, maybe it was mirroring. Real life shit that was going on. So he meets a dancer, Ava Gardner, who was already by 1954 starting to show some toothiness. You know, she's getting maybe long in the tooth a little bit. And he wants to put her in his next, next big picture. And, you know, it's it's another one of Bogey's fascination with international co-productions. So we have Mario scoring Valentina Cortese, who was in Mario Bava's um, the girl who knew too much, Rosanna Brazzi. Quite a few recognizable faces from Euro Euro pictures and British films. Again, this is mirrors the last film we just discussed. So Bogey falls in love with this woman who's trying to make a thing, an actress in this movie. But he's also extremely jealous of her. He looks very tired in a lot of this movie. I'm not sure quite what it is. It's a beautiful looking film. Joseph L. Mankiewicz was an odd director of of uh, cinema. He was like a contract guy. He did that long and odd-looking Cleopatra with Burton and Taylor. And he also did strange movies till the end of his life. He, did, he stopped working for a while. Then he did like an exploitation movie, The Honey Pot. Then he, he ended it with Sleuth, Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine. Really good picture. But he didn't work a lot. And, but when he did... He did, you know, he did it all about Eve. And we talked about Sleuth in our Michael Caine show, those who are interested. Yes, yes, we did. It's just a very strange movie. I don't feel it's completely successful, but it's not a complete wipe either. So there's that. Okay, so the last film that I covered was The Year After, which is The Desperate Hours. It's a William Wyler. Bogart's very last film, or damn close to it, this is yet another noir, where he's the leader of a trio of escaped convicts who pull a Give Us Tomorrow slash Fight for Your Lifestyle home invasion, holding up with a boring suburban family led by Frederick March, Death Himself from Death Takes a Holiday, Gig Young, and Simon Oakland, Kolchak the Night Stalker's boss, who both appear briefly. It's really bad, and it feels like you're gritting your teeth watching this junk even longer than these folks are held hostage. You've seen the same story a billion times on TV cop shows and later movies, cult and otherwise, and all of them were probably done better, more gripping, and had more interesting actors involved. Bogart comes off like a dick, like an old tired one to boot. It's not my idea of fun, much less a career closer, but there you have it. This is where he was going towards the end of his life. Well, Bogart always thought it was a, he always thought it was a continuation of the Duke Mantee character from the Petrified Forest. I think that's why he was so into it. Originally, so Desperate Hours was on Broadway. Who knew until I researched this? I didn't know that. Paul Newman was in the Bogart role, so I would have been a young Paul Newman. But, of course, the studio 
thought Bogart would be better. And then Bogart kind of thought of it as like the mature, older version of his earlier character would be fine. And then they were thinking of casting Spencer Tracy alongside Bogart, which potentially could have been interesting. But that fell through. So instead, we got Frederick March, who ends up, eh, whatever. This is for Paramount. This is 1955. The 60s are coming. And it just it's a rough movie, but not without its merits, because believe it or not, this this movie became the cookie cutter for this kind of picture. It was it was it was copied ad infinitum decades later, years later, over and over. They used this story for so many pictures, TV shows, whatever. Actually, it was remade in 1990. Are you believe it or not? By Michael Cimino, the Deer Hunter, with Mickey Rourke, Anthony Hopkins, David Morse, your favorite, Mimi Rogers, and Kelly Lynch. And the reason why you don't remember it because it's terrible. <laughs> but um, I, but this is you know that, that was like a, a definite remake with the name you know very similar. But the harder they fall was his last movie, and uh, directed by Rob, Mark Robson, who was a Universal guy who was working for Columbia at this time period. So it's Humphrey Bogart's last film, 1956, 1956 actually. Rod Steiger, Max Beer, well, obviously as a boxer. <laughs> Namaya Persoff, ubiquitous TV actor. So here's the thing. Bogart was diagnosed with cancer of the throat. Around the time of production of this movie, he died really quickly. So he knew he had cancer while he was making this movie, so he was coping with it, but he actually managed to finish his film and then passed away. So he plays a down-as-luck, broke newspaper man whose life is like just the shits. And he's hired by a skeezy boxing promoter to work with him. So he puts together a boxing promotion, and then he deals with the underworld. So his character... Eddie Willis, does he does he deal with things that mean something to him, or is he just still trying to make a buck? Um, this was based already on a teleplay by Bud Schulberg, and I think possibly a, a play called The Heart of the Fall, which I think Rod Serling also had something to do with the, for the television. It's good. It's, it's a very good performance by Bogart. You have no idea he's sick. He doesn't look completely well. But he looks more energized than he did for his last one or two films that we discussed. This was a Columbia picture. It was released 1956. It got good reviews, but people thought it was like another one of his films where it's downbeat. And it's just, you know, you're going to the cinema. You're not sure what Humphrey Bogart kind of movie you're going to see. But, you know, you don't want to come out to find this. It was very popular in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. It's the kind of movie that had like downbeat themes. You know, like everything ended bad. Maybe everybody died. You know, what am I trying to get out here? Um, uh, it's just a theme that became very prevalent at a certain time period. But that being said, like it's a good, it's a good goodbye for him. And uh, it's it, it's not a bad movie. I think people should check it out. So you know, McCarthy and Huack, those who know your history, he once said, "They'll nail everyone who ever scratches ass during the national anthem." Hmm, see any parallels these days? He's a funny character because most of us would classify him as a tough guy. In a sense, he is. He's resilient. He takes no shit. He speaks his mind unashamedly, and he's defiant to quote-unquote authority figures. And yet, watch his films. He's always the sap. 
the put-upon guy, the hard luck case. He gets beaten up on a lot. He gets smacked around by life, and he's used by women and friends alike. He said of himself that, I'm not exactly what I consider tough. I'd say I'm kind of tough and calloused inside. I could use a foot more in height and 50 more pounds in 15 years off my age. And then God help all you bastards. And yet, one of the stories given for his nose for Lipscar, like I mentioned, was that he got in a bar fight, and that it was sometime during his film career, mind. But notice, very much like ourselves, he was actually a lefty. And yet he had zero tolerance for bullshit, hypocrisy, pretentiousness, bourgeois behavior. And sadly, that's not what we see nowadays from those who consider themselves left-leaning. These easily triggered speech and thought police types. Somebody like a Bogart would find themselves questioned as to their allegiances. Because a free thinker, an opposer of quote authority of any sort, could never and would never submit to any sort of purity test, much less pass one. That's not what it's about, and that's actually what's wrong nowadays. Both sides are kind of insane, and everybody seems to have lost the plot. And that's another thing. Bogart hails from the days when we still allowed ourselves to have heroes. You know, nobody sat around thinking that Clark Gable was infallible, superhuman, an upstanding guy who'd never ruffle anyone's feathers, regardless of how oversensitive they may be. Far from it. The guy was a boisterous prankster and practical joker. And yet, these were the guys that we all looked up to, modeled ourselves after, wanted to be. And this goes right from the heyday in the 30s and 40s, right through to the retro film appreciation movement of the 70s and 80s, and the AMC and PBS fans of the 90s. Who the fuck is anyone holding high regard these days? Kanye West? Lady Gaga? Reality TV stars? They must have went up with one for president. And what a doozy that one turned out to be. We've lost our dreams. We've lost our soul. And worst of all, we've lost our heart. Our belief in a better world and our fellow man. Let the other guys know better than me. Hello, intersectionalists with your oppressed minorities. Everyone else in the world is better than you evil white guys. Fuck you. But on the flip side of the same coin, these people have the same basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without harassment or being put upon any worse than the rest of us. Nobody's better. You know, fuck this meritocracy and Randy and stuff. But nobody's worse either. Cut the shit, everybody. Wake up. Let's rebuild a human race and a civilization worth living in instead of this dog-eat-dog conglomeration of Lovecraftian degenerate animals that we've actually allowed ourselves to degenerate into being. And let's put up somebody like a Humphrey Bogart or somebody like from these old days that could say, hey, you know what? I am resolutely left, and yet I'm not going to fit into these little pigeonholes that you want to put me into. This is a very weird time that we're in, and I think that we need to go look back and find somebody like this along these lines. Find heroes again. Find something to believe in again, because we're really losing the plot. Going through all these films, that really kind of rung heavily with me, because a lot of them, if you've noticed, were very political. They had a lot to say about society. They had a lot to say about the world. Yes, this was kind of leading into and going past World War II. That said, it wasn't just all about the war. It was about us. Maybe in certain ways, even though it was an America that needed to get further in its you know, race relations and gender relations and whatever else, it may have been a better place to live. And I think we really need to get ourselves, being nowadays in the way that we are, back to something like that. More of a inclusive but not insane way of relating to each other. That's what I take away from this Bogart films. He was a tough guy in ways that matter more than just being two-fisted. So, what's your take? Uh, what can I add to that? <laughs> well, what's your last comments on Bogart? No, uh, a, a very interesting actor who, over time belied his parents and vocally and, and visually who wound up becoming a, a powerhouse of cinema well he became a man's man give or take and he you know became a noted came mutiny came mutiny uh, he also won best actor so twice nominated twice so he became an outspoken person for rights he started his own production company I think very interested, you know, with these European and British, uh, British and Europe, other European co-productions, was really looking forward. I think he was really trying to do something that 
other people of his time period really weren't doing. But I give him credit for a lot of stuff. He, he did a lot of unusual roles. Maybe not all of them worked. Maybe not all of them successful. But in enough, in quotations, classic movies to make them well-remembered and certainly a subject for discussion tonight. All right. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy our little drawing room chat on Humphrey Bogart. Next time, I believe you were looking at Donald Pleasance. Jeez, another big one in a row. Maybe we'll reconsider that and go for the next one on the list. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, who'd like to join us in there, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1, and we're on Podbean, third-eyesinema.podbean.com. Uh, we're also on iTunes, itunes.apple.com forward slash us forward slash podcast, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast, ID 55. 340244. Otherwise, just look for us under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. We'll find us on iTunes. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network now on Podbean. Uh, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thank you for at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? 
a reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> that was a lot of movement there. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't pull it out. I had to pull it out first. That's what she said. <laughs> So how you doing? Uh, always running around. So this on top of everything else is like, I... <laughs> you know, it's funny. Don't laugh because I never really thought about fame panel. You know, mm-hmm. It wasn't really on my radar. I've done odd things before, say Night Fever, Grease. You know, it's actually cute and it worked. 
Yeah, it's all right. But all of a sudden, I get these people like personal messaging me. Are you going to do fame? Is it really? <laughs> so I mentioned it to him. He goes, yeah, but the guy who's bringing them is really a hard case as far as people being away from the tables, not making money. Uh, you know where that comes from because they have to give the guy a cut. Sure. I think I know who it is. It's a guy who, he was a real dick. I don't know how these guys do it unless I just don't have the gift of gab. You know, older heavyweight, you know, years ago, these guys would have been geeks at conventions. But they kind of insert themselves into these people's lives, you know, probably getting to be friendly. And I could be your agent, you know, and then, all right, whatever. It doesn't matter to me that people don't want to do these things, but when you get the thing like they don't want them to be away from their table, that's kind of like, well, that's really weird. So you're looking at them like meat, you know, product. So the mistress is at Comic-Con, huh? Yeah, she got the passes from her job. So, oh, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say how it's going, really, because I figure Thursday's going to be your best day to get stuff done. Friday, people will probably be taken off from work, but it'll still be better than Saturday. And then Sunday's just the people that go there to see if they can get stuff cheaper. Mm. And it hasn't really turned out like that. Apparently, Thursday was crazy. They did have some freebies. That's when she came home with the most stuff. But you had to be there early, mm. and she wound up taking the... Apparently they have an express bus and the regular it takes the scenic route and they don't really tell you it they'll say via whatever route but not express or not express or whatever they'll just say the bus number so she gets on this one and the guy's like yeah you know express will be faster i don't know when they show up but you know difference in routes she's like yeah don't worry about it you'll be fine and it turned out she was on a freaking bus for an hour and a half oh my and, gosh. and this was planned okay they'll get me in there in half an hour 45 minutes she was worried she was going to miss out on this one thing oh there's only like a couple hundred made and you have to be here first thing in the morning to get them and first come first serve and that's it so I was like, gosh am i gonna make it but it turned out it was okay she got what she needed but she was supposed to go they also spread things out it's funny because we used to think that some of the shows we went to were like, in some ways fine but in some ways not really run that well you know they didn't really have management of the, where the people are and how to get to things and mm. panels being scheduled simultaneously and that kind of jazz lines that you're on the right line but then all of a sudden they change your mind and go in another door and you got screwed and that kind of thing right apparently this thing which is supposed to be huge. I didn't yeah. do a Comic Con of that sort since God knows 1984 or something. And those were all well run back when. At least I remember them being that way. This is a freaking disaster. It was like everything possible that could go wrong went wrong. And somehow, almost from day one, but definitely Friday and Saturday, like every freaking panel she tried to get into, even though she was there early, they're like, oh no, it's full up. Really? I can't get in? So it's like, oh, well, what do I do now? So she goes and wanders into some other place or, you know, goes around through the, the artist room or whatever. And there's people there that I sent her. I was like, okay, I don't care what else you do, but if you could go and get a sketch from this one, or if you could get an autograph from that one, take a picture with this one, whatever the hell, you know, see what you can do, because there's a couple of people I'm interested in. Mm. And none of them. Apparently, the lines were crazy for a couple of them, which I wasn't really expecting. So I was like, okay, people were there to see these Hollywood people, not really to see these comic people. It's, you know, it's supposed to be a comic con. Right. Then, she sees somebody who's smaller scale, but I figure, okay, she's newer, she's younger, you should be able to get a sketch of this one character out of a Squirrel Girl, which is something pretty recent, but I get a kick out of it when I read it. The trades. If you see her, you give her like a head sketch. Usually when we run into these things in the past, it's like somebody's charging you five bucks, ten bucks. I don't know what it was, but apparently it was too much friggin' money. She's like, yeah, these prices were not in anybody's range that anybody's sane. Okay, that's interesting. Oh. So, despite coming home with a few interesting freebies, which she did from various panels she was at, it was like almost everything she set out to go see, or anything she set out to do, bombed. She's just kind of wandering around, there's crowds everywhere, everything's mismanaged, she's constantly getting locked out of panels. 
she was on lines for she actually did one thing where I was like okay go in to see Maureen Ellison sign off this he was there for like Castlevania or some shit I don't know what's going on with that but anyway you know him from the comic books she's supposed to get some kind of signature thing with him and she wants to have special preference to get in on certain autograph panels so she goes in there they have her stand on this big long line for he starts up and then they change their mind last minute and have people go in another door so all the people that they had lining up in advance that were supposed to be there ended up getting like shoved way the hell the back at the end of the line just because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing I'm like really this is supposed to be good management are you crazy it's like we have better management at your show and all these other ones I'm naming yeah, off yeah, I'm like yeah, yeah. be kidding me we mocked them in the past I'm like no maybe they're better than all these fucking giant shows I don't understand it first day she was like I don't know she's totally worn out and it was raining out and whatever yeah. I thought she was gonna get sick seriously a little under the weather after that too but it wasn't that bad it was just like okay this is a strange experience things aren't working out the way I wanted to but at least I got some of the swag I went there to get and I got some other stuff I saw a few good panels Friday she comes back she's like I don't think I want to do this again because everything was a disaster. It was just like, you know, the worst stuff that I'm telling you right now. Mm. Yesterday, apparently, it was more quiet. Now, it's a little bit different now that I know what the problems are and where to avoid and whatever. And like I was talking about, like, okay, talk to this person. Jim Starlin's there, right? I always love his stuff. Chris Claremont's there. Bill Sienkiewicz is there. All these people that, you know, there's other people too, but those are the ones I was like, okay, if you see these guys, you know, see if you can get a photo with them, see if you can get an autograph, see if you can get a sketch, whatever. Nothing. So she sends me a picture. Look who I found. She finds the guy that does the Teen Titans Go comic. Like it's basically for little kids. I mean, the cartoon on the TV show is like okay, it's silly, it's for kids, but it's absurdist. There's a comic book out that's basically designed for kids that are like five years old or whatever the hell, and it's got this really silly like childlike art. And she finds that guy, and of course, you know, he was dirt cheap, so she went up with a sketch of her person from there. She's later on, she's like, hey, you want anything else? I'm like, you know what, go back and get me this other character. So, that's the two that she brought home. <laughs> so, I have this whole con. All these people, I was like, go see this one, go see that one. That's all she brought home. I'm like, you know, as soon as you sent me that picture, I laughed, because I'm like, this is so you. This is who you, you go in there to see all these big names or whatever, and you find this guy. <laughs> Well, I saw I have I have a couple of friends over there, and I, the crowds. The yeah, that's what she's telling me. It was like wow, hundreds of thousands of people look like crazy. Yes, somebody I don't know if it was them or a friend of them, mm-hmm. friend of theirs. Somebody took a, a, a cell phone, so they're they're inside. They're following a line. They're, they're going to take you to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, let me watch this for a few minutes. So they're inside, just like four or five. Tens of people. They go outside. They go outside. They go around. 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 I says, "Oh my God, crazy!" Yeah, she's talking about to shop I mean, to buy a figure from whatever. I mean, it's not anything special. It's just like, okay, this place has a table. Like I got the one plushie that I've been using as the uh, avatar. Yeah, who's from that thing that Matt Groening's doing now? The one that's more like D and D. Disenchanted. That's it. Disenchantment. Mm. I always like the devil in that one. She's like, got like a little devil that comes out of hell that like is supposed to tempt her into stuff and ends up becoming her friend. <laughs> and they kind of go around these stupid little misadventures. Basically, she's always like getting drunk and whatever the hell, screwing things up. So I always love this guy. I'm like, she says. Oh, they got a plush I'm like, you gotta get this she goes there and she's like you know that was one of the first things she went in for she's there on Thursday gets on the line for this thing. she's like yeah you wouldn't believe this the line wrapped around the table and around other people's tables so, you know god knows like, maybe a hundred people at 10.30 in the friggin morning on the first day on a Thursday to go and buy something not to go and get an autograph not to go and see somebody not to go see a Hollywood thing not even to get in on a panel to buy something they got these lines like basically going out the door I'm like what the fuck what is wrong with everybody 
I don't yeah. know. I don't understand it. It's, it's very different from when I used to go into, oh, geez, those were the creation cons back when, and I saw Yeah, a yeah, lot. I, I've done those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw so many people, big names from Hollywood and TV and sci-fi, you know, that Blake's seven people were there, Battlestar Galactica people, Adam West was at one, Isaac Asimov, you had writers, you had film people, Rick Baker was at one, Nancy Allen, and also maybe Spielberg, Rob Bottin, Neil Adams, John Byrne, Frank Miller, all these people I saw, and I was like, okay, going seeing them from panel to panel, stopping by their tables, you know, buying comics. It was a big thing when I was a kid. And, you know, my folks were there. I guess they saw some of the stuff, or at least my father went to some of these things. And they were talking about how, like, oh, yeah, this is really cool, this panel about whatever, these movies, or how they do this, or my mother's all excited to see Neil Adams at that one, because that was from an earlier generation. Yeah, it was nothing like what I'm seeing now, because, actually, that's the other thing. She doesn't even have to fucking go, because if you just want to see the people that are there, they actually live stream it on YouTube and, uh... Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So I, I've been watching the whole weekend while she was there. I'm sitting there watching the stuff that she can't even get in to see. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, it's not all of it, but, you know, still, a lot of stuff. I'm like... No, I, I have been hearing a lot of people saying they were online and they've consumed themselves early. Yeah. Only to find, when they open the door, somebody comes out and says, oh, it's already packed. Packed with who? And who were those people? Exactly. Where'd they come from? I mean, yeah. I, and that's part of the thing. I think they had a win. Oh, look, you were, you know, in the special autographs. There's right. the one that you went to. Mm. Like, really? That's it? You, so everybody's got this before you even walk in the door, the odds are stacked against you? Like, wow, this is just screwed up. Yeah, yeah. I come in, we'll lock the door, and, uh, hmm, interesting. Yeah. So uh, I don't know where she stands right now. I think she's a little more amenable to going back again if she can do it again next year. But in the beginning, it was like, I don't want to go back to this thing. I don't care. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. I've never been. I may mean, have a huge curiosity factor. But if I can get it for free, okay. It's also very expensive. Yeah. That's another reason we never went. Because <clears throat> people are like, oh, you going to Comic-Con? you go to Comic-Con? I'm like, First off, I don't really collect the stuff anymore. I mean, I, I do reread my old stuff. I reorganize them every once in a while. I dig through. I've actually been doing a lot of digging through lately. I'm reading entire runs from back in the 70s or whatever. But the new stuff, I don't really care. You know, I cut off years ago. I mean, geez, back when they were doing Civil War, it was my cutting point with Marvel. And then that 52, 25, 52, back and forth with DC was mm. when I dropped off with them. Around the time they were putting out Manhunter and they made that kid Firestorm. Oh, yeah. The Firestorm was a black <laughs> kid, you know, and it was okay. I was reading that for a bit, but after about you know 12 issues of that, I'm like, all right, you know, these aren't that great anymore. Do I care? It wasn't as violent a cutoff as Marvel where I'm like, fuck you guys. <laughs> this is more like, eh, you know, this is crap. Who cares? But, yeah, I mean, it's been that long, which is probably now, I don't know, maybe a decade. And then our comic store closed down and there was all this kind of stuff. So, basically, even though I kind of look at it from a distance, I don't really give a shit anymore, except for whatever I already got, the old stuff. Yeah, it's just like, ah. I don't know. I mean, you look at the prices on this stuff. I hear the stories. I'm hearing a direct from her now. I'm seeing some of these panels, which are terrible. They're like, I don't know, most of them are like 15 minutes long. And I'm watching, like, who's this person? I don't care. Who's this person? I don't care. And I'm talking about not even the comic people. I'm talking about the people from, like, Hollywood or TV shows. I'm like, I don't give a shit about this. Oh, there's the cast of Angel. That wasn't a very good panel. Who the hell is this? Oh, there's Warren Ellis with this Castlevania thing. All right, at least I know the games and I know him. Yeah, that kind of sucked. You know, <laughs> and it's kind of that thing going on through the whole thing. Oh, this Chris Claremont. Jeez, what an asshole. And then he goes on to the next one. So it's really just watching this stuff and hearing her stories has been like even more disincentive to ever go to this thing. I'm like, wow. I heard Bruce Campbell did one. Yeah, because they're talking about a fourth Evil Dead feature. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I really dug Evil Dead, the show. Mm-hmm. 
I really liked that. It was very strange. <laughs> it's, it's like a misnomer. It's Evil Dead, right? But no, it was very weird. I liked the whole things. I didn't always agree with something, but how the fuck does does Showtime and Netflix not want to pick this up? And that's what killed it. They didn't want to do it anymore. And then Bruce said he was retiring from the character. And then it's funny. Sam Raimi said the other day, we're doing a fourth one, but Bruce may still want to be in retirement. So Bruce was at Comic-Con. I says he is working with them, definitely in an exec producer capacity, and that's it. I'm like, you don't sort of get it. If Ash isn't in this kicking ass, we don't want to see it. Yeah, they actually had Sam Raimi at this, but I don't think he was talking evil. There's something else. I'm like, yeah, whatever, who cares? I think about oh, yeah, Spider-Man he's, he's doing a, um, I don't know if it's for Hulu or one of those oddball streaming things. He's doing a uh, series of short films or something. Uh, for one of the cable things, or one of the streaming things. Uh, but that's in addition to the Evil Dead thing. I just like, I don't know. Otherwise, it's just like any one of these movies. You know, you know if it doesn't have him, it doesn't have that kick. You know, mm-hmm. you know really what they should do, because it, it, they didn't know they were canceling it. So it never had a freaking ending for the show. And so what they really should do is just bring them all back for a feature, and then, then, then kill it. That's fine. Make it something satisfactory. Oh, I thought of another con that we went to that had a lot of problems. We went twice to the L.I. Who out in Long Island. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Especially the second one was, like, in a lot of ways a disaster. And that was kind of like the low bar for, oh, my God, how can they fuck up a decent con? Until all the stories I'm hearing and what I've been watching from this New York Comic Con. like, wow, the cons are bad. You know, it was a really smooth-running con. was the Space 1999 one. Really? And uh, what was it called? Breakaway. My friend Phil was there the whole time, and he shot lots of footage, and he took two million pictures. And it was pretty much everybody who's surviving mm. in the cast and crew. And I was like, I thought some of them were dead. No pun intended. I really did. I was like, oh, my God, I was dead. Yeah, cause isn't all the leads dead? Morse, Bane, and Landau? Well, Bane was there. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, she was. Bane was there, as well as uh, Nick. You know, the co-pilot? Right. Abraham? Yes, they did. Uh, Serena, the one with the purple hair. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of people there. And and so there it was quite a few. One of the lone black women from season two who was sort of like the Uhura type. Mm-hmm. And, and she actually looked great. And so, you know, my friend Phil's just reporting. He's got tons of pictures with them. He had lots of video. And I said, you know, I was just saying how well it was run. I said, Phil, I didn't fucking know about it because I would have gone. Yeah. Even if it was in Long Island or maybe in New Jersey somewhere or maybe upstate, I could take a train to Westchester. Mm-hmm. This is the most poorly promoted show. <laughs> of course, of course, it was so relaxing. And, you, you know, the room was well attended. I mm-hmm. guess hardcores knew about it. But I'm saying it's the kind of thing It's like, where's the promotion? I didn't even know this was happening. And it passed away. Like, you know, stuff just starts showing up Sunday night. But like you said, that's actually why it worked well, because we saw L.I. Who 2. And that was actually pretty good, despite you know, any minor problems that were going down. Mm. Whereas 4, was the other one we went to, was terrible because it got too big. They moved uh, to another yeah. hotel, there's too many people. Then all this crap that we're talking about with the bad lines and the mismanaged panels, and the, that's when all that shit happened. 2 was okay. Mm. <laughs> so you want the small ones. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But uh, you know, when they sort of come into your thing of, yeah, I'd be interested in checking this out. It's like, oh, I didn't even know what was going on. You know? mm-hmm. so, Same here. Yeah. All 